Hey, this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Welcome to another episode on Anderson's TV. And I have a very special guest today um, because I've decided that it's about time that we should invite the man that started it all to come onto the show. So look, it's Mr. Peter Anderton, my dad, um, who, yeah. Nickname? Do you want a nickname? Admiral? The Admiral. The Admiral. Yeah, absolutely. The Admirable Admiral. Uh, and yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, very nice. It's great to see you again. Yes. <laughs> I don't see enough of you. This, this, is, this is true. So, obviously, um, what I'd like to try and talk about, you, you, you started the store with your dad, my granddad, yeah, in, in the early we, 60s. We did. So yeah. we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, but uh, let's talk before. You're a, a drummer. Alleged. Uh, alleged drummer. <laughs> um, as was granddad and as yeah. is guy my yeah, brother that's true uh, yeah. so what come on tell us growing up come then uh growing up in the sort of 50s and you know and, and yeah. what sparked the interest in music well that's a good question what sparked my interest in music well i suppose i was born in 46 which was just after the war so we had rationing and um white stuff we had a lived in a little flat in battersea um in on the ground floor, little garden. So I had Clapham Common, if anybody knows that area, was my playground when I was really young. Um, so that's how things started. But my dad, as you know, Harry, was uh, a keen drummer and had been in dance bands uh, pretty much, you know, uh, all the time I knew him. He was in the police as well. We'll come to that a bit later. I'll tell you, yeah. tell you a story of how I... It's quite a long story, actually. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> um, so... My interest in music. So that, that, it was always around. You know, my dad, he just loved, uh, you know, he lived, he lived for his dance band and going out. But he was a, um, he always had a, a dicky bow, you know, like a black dinner suit. Uh, so he, that's how he, I always remember him, getting ready to go out on his, um, on his jobs on a Saturday night. And, of course, it was very, uh, growing up, it was a bit surreptitious because police are not supposed to have a second job or an income. Right. And, he, and I always remember listening to conversations, you know, where he'd be doing a Masonic Lodge do or something like that in the West End of London because most of his gigs were in the West End of London, Cafe Royal and uh, Dorchester Hotel and all those sorts of things, you know. And he'd be terrified there'd be, there'd be some, <laughs> one of his senior senior officers, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the lodge or something like that. So I always remember that. But he, that, he always had that great interest in music and he was very... Uh, he was a big... I was thinking about this last night, you know, when we were chatting after the Halloween thing. But he had a, bit, he had a much more of an influence on my life than I probably realise, you know, in terms of... Uh, his artistic ability, he's a very great artist um, and was fantastically clever with his hands. You know, like he could make anything. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that, that sort of war generation, if they could make, they, yeah. my dad would always, you know, he would prefer to make it rather mm -hmm. than buy it. We used to get some great toys as kids. I remember oh. Grandad made me a castle, like a, I guess, a modern day equivalent would be like a Lego type castle. But he made the whole thing out of wood and yeah. had little figures that, and I had that for years. Yeah, but I, know. Yeah. I just, I don't think nowadays you just buy it, wouldn't you, from Amazon? Yeah. But he must have spent yeah. weeks. But it was making it was that. the ingenuity that fascinated me because he he did the same for me at some point when right. we'd move. So I would be about seven or eight, something like that. Big big fort, you know, like about three foot square. 
um, and he'd, he'd come up with a way of creating a drawbridge and a portcullis <laughs> out of cotton reels, elastic bands and wax candles. I always remember this. So you pulled the drawbridge down like that and let it go and it used to go like this. Oh, right. And the portcullis came down at the same time. <laughs> and you looked inside and it was all just done with elastic bands, cotton reels and, uh, and the cotton reels on the wax candles, you know. And it wasn't until years later I thought, you know, he was he was he was really clever at that, and you know, it made Leslie, my sister, you know, an amazing doll's house, you know, with all just in in our little shed. Well, I'll come on to that a bit later. This is this is um, when we'd moved to Fulham. So what happened? Then? So yeah, we didn't have much much to do up to, with music, I suppose, apart from it being around up to the age of about seven. And then when I was seven, we moved to Fulham. Um, into police accommodation. So we moved to this place called Wallam Grove, which was ever so posh now. You can't right. buy a house you know, under about a few million there. But in, in those days, we just, uh, because we didn't own property, you know, my dad was, by that time, was in the CID. He was, um, he, he used to study a lot at home. I remember him doing his exams and he managed to, he got to detective sergeant. And, um, and he was, but he was still keen on his drumming, you know, and that sort of thing. So I'd be about seven then when we moved there. And uh, we, so as I got a bit older, as sort of I started getting interested in, because he, he, drums and drumming was and music was all around, um, I started bashing on a practice pad, you know, about the age of about 11 or 12 or something like that. But, I, but at that time, of course, it was, my dad was a jazz fan, you know. Mm. He, came, he was brought up on jazz and, um, you know, Count Basie, big band stuff, Buddy Rich. We went to see Buddy Rich at the Cafe Royal live, you know, wow. when he was over in the UK. That was that was a great evening, you know. And um, so, big band, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, all that sort of stuff. But I, you know, I I couldn't get, I didn't get hooked on, I didn't get inspired by that, you know. But what, uh, and again, I was just, I was trying to reflect last night on what my earliest influences would have been somebody like Lonnie Donegan. Because okay. Lonnie, you know, at that time, I'll be, whilst we're talking about uh, 56, 56, yep. 57, 1956, 1957, um, Lonnie Donegan was a huge, massive, massive mm. influence on loads of later rock musicians. You know, you quite often hear sort of rock musicians mm. guitarists my age now <clears throat> who say, you know, that, you know their first... Um, First inspiration was seeing Lonnie Donegan live, you know, sort of, and he he had a rather strange genre, didn't he, of skiffle? Skiffle, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was it was it was it was a rock country, but you know, up tempo. So of course, I had a you know, we had a, a little skiffle band. I must have been, and um, we had some guy. With it. We had the proper tea yeah. chest, double bass, you know, down in the basement of the flats where we we used to live. Um, somebody had a guitar, and I had a washboard for a start for starters because you had a washboard in those days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I graduated to a pair of bongos on a stand, you know. So I thought that was pretty cool, you know, so I was used to do that. And, I, and then I got to about, um, where was it? I was then moved school. I went on to secondary school at Putney. Mm-hmm. And I'd be about, well, 12 years old, I suppose, there, wasn't I, to about 12. And got more and more interested and then met up with a few guys at school that played, you know, Pete, um, Pete Green being one of them. Um, so we were in the same class in the second and third year together. So I, I should just say yeah. th- we're talking the Peter Green, <laughs> not just a Pete Green. But yes, so yeah. this was Dad's first Pete, band. Pete not, not a bad guitar player to have <laughs> no, in that. No, was great. And his brother, um, but Pete and because um, uh, I'm just talking to a guy that's doing a um, a biography of Pete Green, 
um, Christopher, what's his surname? I can't think of a Danish guy, but he did one on Jeff Beck. Right. So he's writing this um, book. But, but I remember Pete's brother as well, Mickey Green, who was his older brother, who right. was probably a, an influence on him, and uh, he, they lived on Putney Hill. Um, but he was, he, was a, he was just an amazing player even in those days, you know. So I, and I can't remember any of the other guys in the band. But anyway, so there was, there was quite a bit of activity. But the influences on music were very much listening to Radio Luxembourg, you know, um, or yeah, it was Radio Luxembourg, and um, that's about all I can remember. I, and I can't remember buying many records in those days because I didn't have any money for a start, yeah. you know, like pretty, <laughs> pretty skin. But I was always a bit... Um, I was always a bit entrepreneurial, you know, so I started out getting um, uh, a couple of paper rounds. I did a morning paper round. I did an, a Sunday after Sunday paper round um, to earn some pin money and then started working on a stall in North End Road Market, you know, sort of like flogging. Selling what? Yeah. Well, it was a, like a general oh, okay. grocery Stall, you know, like cream crackers, and, and I had to learn how to shout out, you know, half a pound of butter, packing and shake of cream crackers, <laughs> two and six, or something like that. You know, I was only twelve or thirteen, <laughs> so, um, but it was a good experience, you know, like gives sure. you a bit of confidence and things like that. And because um, I, I think I was very insecure, you know, as a, as a kid, really. Um, but so that gave me a bit of confidence. So I, I earned a few bob and things like that. So. Um, Used to listen to Radio Luxembourg. Where would they go to? For the, and the, and those were the influences. Was that late, um, mid to late fifties? Mm. You know, r- r- rock. You know, rock and roll. And it was so the big American scene. What Buddy Holly, Elvis, all yeah, that kind of Buddy stuff. Yeah, Buddy Holly. Um, but there was quite a bit going on in the English on the mm-hmm. English side as well. You know, it was like Marty Wilde, Adam yeah. Faith. There was um, um, who was the other producer um, who did Telstar. Um, no, I remember. I remember. This, okay. is, this is my problem now. See, like getting, <laughs> getting dementia setting in. I think, um, but oh, it'll come to me in a minute. But there were some fantastic producers around in those days. Yeah. Like British producers that did um, did stuff and had you know uh, a stable of rock artists. You know, and there was the Two Eyes Coffee Bar and all that sort of stuff. So I um, and but Dad wasn't very keen. You know, Harry wasn't that keen. He was trying to push me into the jazz. Right. Jazz sort of stuff all the time. And because and I wanted to play straight eights, you know, he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, you know, like, get the brushes out, mate. And, you know, I'll teach, you, I'll teach you how to do a roll, you know, like, because he did do a fantastic <laughs> press roll, Harry, didn't he? He used to impress people with that in the shop. Like a, like a, a Scottish military tattoo um, drummer, you know. Was, I'll, always, I'll always remember his press roll. Um, <laughs> So, um, so there was a, you know, there was a bit of antipathy there, and he didn't have a lot of patience to sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> he just, dis, you know, bloody racket, you know, rubbish music sort of thing. Um, so I, but I did eventually. I practiced and practiced and practiced, you know, with a rubber pad, you know, uh, for for I don't know, a year or two, and I, then I got. I think I used to borrow his kit, or I can't remember the first kit I got, um, but I, I got a kit. And the problem was I couldn't drive because I was only right. 15, I suppose. Four, I started probably 14, 15. Um, so my dad had to run me, you know, like dads are always the taxi drivers, aren't they? So he had to run me up to the school with all the gear and then, then pick me up again. In fact, it's about I don't know, a half hour drive away from Fulham. Um, and then I, I just did a few things like that. But then I got, I got a gig in a pub. My, I don't know how I got it. This is the first ever gig, is it? 
Well, probably. I was doing stuff around that time, but there was a great piano player at school, and I struggle to remember his name. He did become quite famous. I, I saw him, you know, playing keyboards in one or two bands later, and I thought, I recognise that guy. Anyway, um, and he was just a natural piano player. And we ended up, whether my dad had a lot of contacts, you see, in the music industry in the West End, and because he, because quite often um, he needed a dep, you know, like it was, like there was always a yeah. dep situation going on, dep, deputising, it was a uh, slang word, I suppose, yeah. for a deputy, deputising musician. So they were always going, oh, I need a dep for this gig, I need a dep for this. He had lots of contacts in Denmark Street as well, you know. And um, he got us this, this gig, Piano and Drums, right, in Cable Street, I think it was. It was either Commercial Road or Cable Street in the East End of London, you know, right. Yeah. Right, every area. <laughs> you know. And I'm only, I think I was about 13, 14, you know, <laughs> playing in a pub with this guy. I wish I could remember his name. Fabulous piano player. Anyway, so that's, you know, that's, that's how I started. And um, I did a, I used to play three or four nights a week there and over the weekend. So Dad would run wow. me there with the kit leave the kit there. I'd go back on the tube, you know, yeah. to Fulham um, and go backwards and forwards. Uh, and then occasionally, if Dad couldn't run me, I had to get the kit back on the train, on the oh. tube. You know, can you imagine? Oh, bloody... <laughs> so and this was a paid gig, was it, as yeah, well? Yeah, so you're I was, earning, I was earning, earning a yeah, bit of cash even yeah, at that age. Yeah, I mean, in those days, actually, mm. musicians did manage to earn, you yeah. know, a re I think we got two quid or something like that, you know. Um, but yeah, it was a paid gig and that was fun. But um, interesting. But then I got into I got into various I got into a couple of good rock bands. Um, nothing. I don't think these guys were at school with me. I don't know how. I can't remember how I met them. But big tall guy Graham, who was a great player, and um, and we used to we used to get lots of gigs in and around Putney and Hammersmith. You know, like Half Moon mm -hmm. in Putney. Places I, like that. I play there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like... <laughs> you play there. It's a great um, but this pub. is back in you know. Back in those in the fifties, um, I suppose, isn't it? Fifties, late fifties, uh, half been pub, and lots of different, you know, places in and around South West London, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, um, and I would practice and practice listening to stuff, you know, and being influenced by the by the, the drummers of those days. But there was, and then this, I don't know when this, this shadows come along. Fifty eight, yeah. fifty nine. So Tony Meehan was the first shadows drummer. You know, and he was pretty good. Uh, so, of course, as a, you know, that's what we were all copying. Yeah. We were copying the shadow stuff, covering that, and, and all the influences coming over from America. Uh, the tornado, uh, it was Tornado, um, and the Tornadoes, rather. But loads of stuff, like Eddie Cochran, um, and that, that lovely, you know, that sort of backbeat type of stuff. Um, and blue, I wasn't so, it wasn't so much, I didn't get into the blues stuff until a little bit later, you know, they started to get into the Chuck Berries and the BB mm -hmm. Kings and that, uh, those early influences. Um, so, what, so where do we get to? So then I'm, I'm, I'm making quite a good living. Yeah. Mixing between, well, I say good living, but you know, like I'm, I was still at school, mm. still at school. I, that's what happened. I wasted my education. I actually yeah. chucked my oh, biggest regret to today, really, to date, that I I was um, I was a top I got top boy in the first two years in my school, you know, like I was getting fantastic results, and then I thought, oh, you know, bloody ego, like this, you know, oh, I don't need don't need to do any more of this work. I can just 
go in the art department where I used to spend most of my time and play music, you know. And then I started bunking off, you know. I talked, so I, that's I, where I got it all from, yeah. hey? <laughs> So I used to bunk off for weeks at a time and go down the snooker hall in Patney High Street, you know, with a mate of mine. And then we had to, you know, we had to come up with excuses for why we'd been absent for, like, three or four weeks, you know. Because every, as every day went by and you went, oh, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I better, I better stay off a bit longer, you know. <laughs> so, of course, Dad didn't know, you know, Harry didn't know, you know. So, so you get terrified, you know. I bet yeah. he went ballistic, didn't he? Well, I don't think he ever found out never until found I out. told him when I what left. What sort of policeman was he? After I left school, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I, so I wasted my education uh, academically and I, and I finally came out of school. Uh, I, I was the oldest member of the upper six, I think. You know, I was about 17 and a half or 18 when I was still at school. And they said, Mr. Holmes got called into the headmaster's office, you know, he said, um, you, we can see you've managed to get O-level art, <laughs> which was it. And, um, but she said, you, you know, you should, have, uh, you should have left school about six months ago, but how come you're still here, you know? So I said, well, I, so I used to get on really well with the art department a teacher and we were always doing projects for the school, you know, right. like sort of the balance. Anyway. So that so uh so and so I'm playing and uh and having a good time enjoying enjoying life. At, at this point are you thinking I'm going to be a professional drummer? That's what my life career choice no, is going to be. No, no, no. I suppose I need to I need to backtrack as well because mm -hmm. at the same time but I just backtrack here because the 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 key the starter for the music shop and everything else really was um, when when I met Harry Webber, yeah, Harry Webber. So this is this is not obviously Harry Anderton. No, it's not Harry. This is the dad, granddad. This is um, Harry Webber, someone else. A guy called Harry Webber, who was an absolute character, who ran this music shop in King Street, Hammersmith, called King Street Music Stores. And he's long dead now. So is my dad. So I, you know, there's, I can talk about this. I suppose <laughs> no, no chance of getting nicked. <laughs> Um, or, or even getting thrown out for <laughs> corruption or whatever. But um, <laughs> so I think I would have been about 13 or 14. And Harry, Harry Webber ran this. You, you've got to imagine this is... Is he the same sort of age as Grandad? No, so he, he must have been a, bit, a little bit younger, but he was, a, he was just a character. He had no, virtually no teeth. And he had one brown stained tooth up here, like a canine, which he called his pickled onion stabber. <laughs> <laughs> you know... So he, and he, he always used to wear a brown coat, you know, like 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 Ronnie Parker in yeah, like a tradesman's in, um, kind of open brown. all hours. Yeah, yeah, that was it. You know, mm -hmm. they all seemed to. So he wore this brown coat, um, and um, and he was just funny. He was just so hilarious. He was a real character. And this music shop was an oldie worldie. Well, I say oldie worldie. It was a fairly typical music shop from the. 40s and 50s, you know, we sold everything. So violins, violin. They had a good, good business in violins, mm -hmm. cellos, brass instruments, woodwind, lots and lots of customers. Like guys, it was like a little specialist shop, mm -hmm. really. Him and his and his dear wife uh, Teresa, who was a little old Irish lady, who spoke like this. Oh, she was terribly timid, ever so timid. And Harry <laughs> used to have a dicky heart, so he had to. She used to come out, you know, when I was there, sort of more full time. She'd come out. And, Harry, it's time for your sleep, you know, come on. And she'd go and get him, and so he had to go and have a lay down. And then if people came into the shop, you know, she didn't know what the hell anything was, you know. I tell you, it's just, I can't believe it, looking back on it. So how I came, how I came to work there was he, he didn't do drums, and he was thinking of doing drums, because drums were just sort of becoming quite popular, you know. 
and that this was the start, I suppose, of the be- the beginning rumblings of the beat boom. It was called mm-hmm. the beat boom in those days when, you know, every kid on the block wanted a guitar or wanted to be a guitarist or a drummer. Yeah. You know, once they realised they could pull, you know, so we got three chords, three chords and a guitar. They could, they could something's pull. never changed. No, something's never changed. <laughs> so, so my dad at that time was stationed. He'd been. Uh, he'd had quite a, uh, an interesting career in the CID because he was on the flying squad mm-hmm. for quite a while, working out and worked out of West End Central. And this is, I don't know if you've watched Life on Mars, have you? Yeah. In the 70s. Well, if you can imagine it, probably twice as bad as that because mm-hmm. this is the late 50s, early 60s, you know, uh, late in the 50s. That's what I, it was like, you know, and he would never talk about it. So, I mean, Flying Squad for anyone, it, that, oh, that's the Flying Squad. Is, uh, flying Squad was, uh, was a branch was, of CID yeah. running out from Scotland Yard, I think. They still, they're still, but they, they still were, going. they were on the serious crime. Serious crime, yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, sort of. I don't know. You know he would. He, he very rarely would he ever talk about it. You know, yeah. So, you, but, but they, that was who would have all the running with the sort of mobsters kind yeah, of vibe. He, he was he time. was dealing with the when the craze were around. So the corruption, mm. I would yeah. imagine, was horrendous. You know? Yes. Um, and um, anyway, so he did a spell there. Uh, but he did tell me some funny stories. I, I will, I'll tell you one. You've probably never heard this before. But he. They used to, he, he used to laugh about it, and the only times I could get him chatting about it, you know, was when he found it really funny. And that what they would do, they would raid uh, somewhere that they they'd get a tip off that somebody had a load of porn because porn books in those days, you know, <laughs> porn books in those days were were illegal, right? So <laughs> so they would they would raid this place. They nickel they nickel the take all the porn books away, you know, and then they would go around the corner and flog them to, the, to someone else. <laughs> And that's how they, you know, so they made all their <laughs> pin money, you know. I mean, it, it goes on. It just, it used to go. It probably still does, you know. But anyway, so, so lots of stories like that I used to allegedly. hear. You know? Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> allegedly. Um, so, and he was, he was funny. Uh, Harry was. He was a real comedian, you know, very quick-witted, a bit like you. I, I'm sure that's where you get it from. I, I, it bypassed me, I'm afraid, the wit. <laughs> Um, but he was, um, yeah, and the West and being a West Ham fan by, by yes. past me as well. But my dad was a keen West Ham fan, as you know, Lee is. So he obviously skipped a generation. But <laughs> <laughs> so um, so dad ended up at Hammersmith, Hammersmith uh, Police Station. He did a spell at Notting Hill. I don't know if mm-hmm. any, you know people again my age might remember in London the Notting Hill riots. It was a horrendous, you know. Right. And he was based at Notting Hill during that time, Notting Hill riots. So you know, he, he must have seen a lot of the, the side of life, you mm-hmm. know, that sort of thing. And he but he was very, he was quite a sensitive man, I think, in terms of being like an artist and musician mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So I think he used to try and shut that side off and he would never talk about it at home. But anyway, he he used to know Harry Webber. He got to he got to know Harry Webber in the King Street Music Stores in Hammersmith because Harry Webber used to like to dabble in a bit of bent gear. You've heard this story before. I don't you? think and I have. But I'm, I'm loving sure, it. I'm sure I think I told this at our yes. 40th anniversary, right. didn't I, on yeah, Harry could not. He'd, he'd, he'd got criminal record. Right. He'd done some time in Nick. I don't know when, but he'd done some time in Nick, so he had a criminal record for receiving. Yeah. But he couldn't keep his, he couldn't keep his hands off a bit of bent merchandise. 
Um, yeah. Profit margins are very high on very that Very high, stuff. yeah, very high, very, <laughs> very <Allegedly>. high. <laughs> and um, so uh, it was in his interest to befriend my dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so they got quite pally and, um, you know, if, if there was any, if there was any uh, imminent danger of um, a couple walking in and, I don't know, trying to nick harry be on the phone to my dad harry and go harry so he'd sort of like i don't smooth know things over. smooth things over whatever they did i don't know and might bung him a few symbols and things like that or give him he got a bit of discount so harry's saying that he was looking for a new saturday boy so there was a the saturday boy he had the before me was there was a photograph of him in that old archive right um with harry Weber. so that might be interesting to dig that out so i can't remember his name but there's harry and this other guy who i replaced so um or he replaced me one of the two anyway but there's a photograph of king street music stores it'd be interesting to have a quick look and he and he was funny because down the road was um another guy a jewish guy who ran um another music shop and he used to call this the shiny shop you know like he'd send people up there he's the sort of if he didn't if he didn't like like these young youngsters coming in and that sort of wanting rock and roll guitars he'd go no go up the shiny shop mate you, you know he used to call it the shiny shop I'm trying to think of the, the governor's name there. But anyway, so... Um, so I, it wasn't Ivor Arbiter, was it? No, 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 no this was... Um, no, Ivor no. Ivor was around then. But I'll yeah. come to that in a minute. So I'm about 13, I suppose. Must be about 13, 13, 14. And so I get this job in Harry Webber's music shop, you know. And because I'm a drummer, he wanted somebody, you know, mm-hmm. that, that could talk drums to the, to the customers, you know. And we used to get a lot of bands in there and that sort of thing. Like, you know, a little bit later on over the next two or three years, like the Who were regular customers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, they weren't, they weren't big names and yeah. they were just breaking, you know. Yeah. But they would come in. Uh, another guy I remember who was a fairly regular customer was Tommy Cooper, you know. Right. Tommy yeah. Cooper, big bloke, used to come in and he was really serious, you know, but he used to come in for kazoos and Jews harp, Jaws harps, they were called. You know, those things. Yeah. Were, so he used to come in for his... <laughs> it's bits and pieces, you know, like, and it wasn't as many years later. You think, oh dear, the number of people we used to, you know, uh, see you know. So I, so I started there on as a Saturday boy, and I really loved it. You know, it was great. So I'm doing drums and things like that, and um, and then so I'm do, I do Saturdays, you know, every day. And then Harry says, you know, well, can you could you work during the school holidays, you know, things like that. So I said, yeah, okay, okay. So I ended up going in pretty much every day during school holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, and Saturdays for a year or two, something like that. But I was interested as well in all the repair work. So I started doing drum recovering. That was one of the first things he did. Um, in the, we had a little, in Fulham, we had a, you know, these flats, we had a little garden outside uh, in the back. Just, there were three flats, I think. So each flat had a little bit of a square of garden. And my dad built a little shed in there, right? Okay, freezing cold it was in the winter, but you know, it's a little shed. And, um, and my dad showed me, how, first of all, how to recover drums, because that's what, you know, he was really handy. And we used to go to Romford, funny enough, to buy this stuff called Nacrolac. Can you imagine? And that was, that was like the plastic covering that would go on there. It was like the plastic covering, yeah, but we couldn't get hold of the sort of, like, the glitter stuff, like it was on the American drums, like Ludwig and that sort of thing. So, But we ended up finding this company that made this stuff called Nacrolac for sort of spectacle frames. And that right. Thing. Used to go out and buy a roll of this. And... Anyway, it's various methods and practice recovering drums. So I used to offer a recovering surface, right? So I started that. And then Harry, I I was interested in the... We did a lot of repairs there. So we did repairs to brass and woodwind, violins, cellos, 
um, main, mainly um, saxophones, flutes, clarinets. They always needed re new pads, springs, um, overhauling. And we had a couple of guys that we used to put that work out to. But I, you know, I got Harry to show me. I was really interested. I, show, well, show, I can, I can do that. You know, I can put new pads in that clarinet and respring it, and um, mouthpieces, and um, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces like that. So I said, I, I do that. So, I, so he, he would pay me a bit extra to do that sort of stuff. So I'd take it home in the shed, um, and and do repair. Well, I taught myself guitar there. That was when I, you know, that one and only piece I can play. Yeah. <laughs> A little flamenco piece well, that you play. Like a piece of classical with the, like the, <laughs> um, I can't remember what it's called, but a little classical piece. And I practiced and practiced and practiced this piece in the shop, you know, because it was very quiet there a lot of the time. You'd go an hour or two hours without seeing a customer. Yeah. So I'd just sit behind the till, you know, play, 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 play. You know, I got, I got pretty good at that, but it was, that was all I could play. <laughs> it was enough, anyway. <laughs> so, um, and I tried to teach myself a scale. I'd play a scale on a flute or a clarinet or a saxophone, you know, just so I could test them mm -hmm. and test to see if they were working okay. And um, so did a bit of that. And then uh, I started, the, the bit that I made the most money out of was bow rehairing, right? Violin and cello bow rehairing. Wow. Which is... I, I know, it's just, it's, it's, it's... Who knew? Who knew? It's just amazing, but... Where'd you get the hair from? Well, it's, uh, back then, it was um, a... It's horse hair, go to it? Barnes & Mullins. Barnes & Mullins oh, okay. or Stentor. You didn't literally take, you didn't run up behind a horse and snip No, no, there you go. No, you'd buy it. It was uh, bleached hair was right. white, or black hair was black, you know, and um, and then uh, I was doing that for a while, and it's, uh, yeah, I loved it. It's such a skilled job, you know, putting you know like if you look at a violin bow there's all these little parts on it there's a frog and a feral screw and a little bit of this and a bit of that and you have to make these little wooden blocks and chips and you've got to get the hair just right the length of it just right so that when you poke it all in the in the frog at the end it's not like a you know like an archery bow yeah. the hair's just the right distance off of the off the wood so that the guy can play it and of course you've got a bit of adjustment on the thing you know and then, uh, then synthetic hair came out, which was a boon because you could just burn that with a lighter, you know, and it would melt on the end. So up, uh, with the real hair, you had to use rosin, resin. So you'd heat up a bit of a uh, little block of glue, resin, and do all that. So anyway, so I, I had a, like a, a mini factory going in the shed <laughs> back home. I used to, you know, used to take these bundles of um, violin bows and cello bows back home. And after school, you know. I was saying, no wonder you never went to school. You had like yeah, a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. No, well, it was Sundays and Sundays and Sundays and um, evenings, I'd be rehairing bows and all that sort of stuff. And I taught, uh, learned, you know, did some guitar, um, guitar repairs, you know, simple repairs and and violin repairs, which I loved, you know, like um, resetting bridges. Not, you know, yeah. anything, to, but, you know, people used to come in to have a bridge reset. There's a sound post inside, you know, you have a spe all these special tools, like a sound post resetter. You know, you sort of have to go in through the F-hole. It's a specialist tool. Yeah, you have to go in through the F-hole <laughs> and set the sound post and, um, uh, you know, and the pegs and things like that, sort of putting new pegs on. And, um, so, yeah, it's a really, you know, uh, so I've learned a lot over, yeah. you know, a few years. I'm playing still. And um, um, and then towards, you know, I'm getting to about 16 or 17, and Harry Weber, mm -hmm. during the school holidays, he used to send me, he'd put me in a taxi and say, and send me into the West End to do his buying, to do mm -hmm. some of his buying, yeah? 
So I used to go into the West End, and I and that's where all the big wholesalers were, like Selmers, a mm-hmm. Selman company, Arbiters. Uh, they were in uh, just uh, in well, I don't know whereabouts are they? Were just off of um, Shaftesbury Avenue, weren't they? And there was Drum City up there, and uh, like Rose Morris. And, yeah, Rose yeah. Morris, uh, Barnes and Money's Rose Morris, um, Stentor, Boozy and Hawks. I think had a they yeah. um, they didn't have a factory there, but they had some presence there in Shafts in Tottenham Court Road, didn't they? Yeah. So there were all the big music shops that are there in Tottenham Court Road and Shaftesbury Avenue. So you know it was like a sweet shop jobby. So and I used to dress Harry's windows as well. I used to do the window dressing, you know. So I'd come go up the West End and have a look and see what. Drum City was doing, and I thought, oh, that looks good. You know, I'll go back and try and do that in King Street Music Store, like a four foot wide window. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, was, it was fun though. Um, and um, uh, where did I get to? So, um, sort of real, real forward. Um, so I got to know lots mm. of the wholesalers and the reps. You know, like when I was in there during the summer holidays, um, the reps would come. Do you remember Marty? I was trying to remember his name. Do you remember Martin Fredman from yeah, yeah. Arbiters? Yeah. yeah. Well, Martin was one of the very first guys I got to know. Um, and, you know, he was a really yeah, nice guy. And um, Alan Maxted, as you know, it's just still... I was chatting to Alan the other day. He's 80-something-odd. Well, he was Premier's, Premier Drum Company's yeah. rep back in those days. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I knew all these guys to, to chat to. So, um, there was never any talk of a, a music shop though. So, but I get to, you know, I get to look school leaving age, don't I? And I'm sort of like thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? You know, sort of. Um, and I didn't didn't really see being a professional drummer as a career. I don't think I wasn't good enough. You know, I don't think I was. Right. I don't think I was. Uh, you know, I don't think I was good enough to. Well, maybe if I'd have, I don't know. Just don't know. But it wasn't something that appealed to me. And I think, I think Dad always put me off you know he'd always say you know don't if you if you want to be a professional musician be a harmonica player because you can put it in your pocket <laughs> you know you can turn up to a gig and go hey right ready lads you know yeah thank you good night and put it away you know because the drummers it, it's a nightmare you know you've got to pack you've got to set it all up you've got to be there an hour before or whatever then at the end of the gig everybody else is off you know and you're, you're, sorry you're sorry you're um you probably just heard beeped off yeah, it's okay. fine you're the last one there still packing you know and all the best birds have gone as well because the guitarist nick those or the lead singer so you get left with the dogs that are hanging around I know, it's awful. Isn't it? It's fine. It's very misogynistic. This was the 1960s, yes, everybody. Very I'm misogynistic. Just late 50s. This is late 50s. So, um, uh, so I, I wanted. What I thought I would do would be to go to art college. Right. So that's really. I would like. I wanted to do a Dipl- diploma in art and design. Dip AD, it's called. But I, I looked around. And I, but I didn't have enough qualifications. I should have had some. You know, I needed mm. some O and A levels to do it. And, and Harry used to say to me, well, what are you going to do? You know, I said, oh, I just don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, you don't know, do you, in those days? I go, well, so every sort of, I don't know, every day, you don't look at the future. You just every day, I think, I'll survive. I'll sort of, I'll, I'll clean more cars. Oh, that was something I was going to mention to you. <laughs> <laughs> About the influences of music was when we were in Fulham, um, one of the other things I used to do to uh, earn money was clean cars on a Sunday morning. So I'd do my... <laughs> paper round and then I'd start cleaning all the neighbours' cars, you know, for turn six of wash or five bob, you know. I was earning quite a lot of money actually with <laughs> gigs and that. I was, do, I was doing all right. So it, and I could afford some cool clothes. Right. So my best You were quite trendy. My best I've buy ever. My best buy ever were some handmade winkle pickers 
black winkle picker boots with Cuban heels with um, with a strap over and three pearl buttons that actually did up. Nice. And they were handmade by an Italian bootmaker in uh, in Battersea. I remember his name. But all the all the mods, you know, because I was this this is a time of the, being a mod at school in the teens. You know, all had the I I couldn't afford a Lambretta, but I had the Lambretta jacket. You know, <laughs> <laughs> used to sort of strut around with some keys, you know, pretending I had one, <laughs> and we winkle pickers, you know. But these winkle pickers were ace, you know. But Harry used to, you know, he used to go potty when I put those on, so I used to have to hide them in my duffel bag and change in the toilets down the end of the road, you know. So, so when I got on the bus, I was like, I was tooled up, you know, with my, with my kit on. So um, I digress, don't I? So I know. Um, so next door to us in Wallam Grove, you lived a guy called Jimmy Grant. Right. Jimmy Grant was the producer of a BBC program called Saturday Club. Right. Right. So, um, you know, and that was, that was the, the sort of um, Saturday Club was everybody, you know, all the kids used to tune into this. I think it was on the light programme, because they didn't mm-hmm. have Radio 1 or anything back in those days. I think it was just a, you know, but it was a cool on medium wave, I suppose. It was a light programme. But Jimmy did, was the producer. So, and it was a, a programme with all new releases on, right? So I used to do his car, which was a little old Renault Dauphin or something like that, I remember, white one. And, um, and he used to give, he used to say, come in, Pete, you know, it's all right. And he was a lovely guy. Uh, I mean, I saw him as quite old, but he was probably only in his mid-twenties or something. Right. But he used to give me piles of 45s, like m- mountains of them, you know, like of all the records that he'd been sent by yeah. the record companies and various people, you know. 99% of which were crap because he used to keep all the good ones I suppose to play on the show <laughs> so I never got anything that was worth listening to you know worth keeping but but it's sort of like you could you could get your influences of mm. what was going on in the music scene you know sort of that from that so um, so sort of roll forward then to I'm about to leave school uh, I'm quite happy working for Harry Webber, because, you know, I don't know, I, I, might, I might have gone full-time. In mm. fact, I think I did go full-time there. So I think I left school. Mm. That's right, I did. I left school and went full-time at Harry Webber's for a period, and I can't remember how long. By that time, I'd passed my driving test, got my first little minivan, you know, little old second-hand minivan, um, so I could get my drum kit around. So that was cool. Um, and... Um, uh, and then, then, then my, I think my dad decided that he, he was 49 years old then and he had to decide whether he was going to sign on, he was going to take early retirement or 25 years. He could come out at 25 years and with a good pension, index link pension, and, um, or he had to sign on for another 10, I think it was, or something like that. So I think that was quite an influence. He, you know, he said, oh, I don't really want to do any. I've had enough. I've had a gutful of the police, you know, and done blah, um, And it was him, because I was working there, he was, it was him. He said, well, how do, how do you fancy, why don't we have a music shop? Then? Why do you fancy music? He said, you know, you, you, you know, you know, all the reps, you know, uh, da, 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 and you can do repairs. And he said, you know, and he, he obviously knew everything about drums and yeah. drumming. And bless his, bless his heart, he, he sort of worked it out because my mum was very supportive as well, you know, at the time. And I had two sisters. Um, so we were, well, Leslie would have been five years younger than me and Debbie was 10 or 11 years younger than me. So he still had a lot of responsibilities, you know. Um, and the flat where we were was rented. It was uh, police-supplied accommodation. 
and you had to, uh, you know, I suppose they had a subsidised rent, but we had no capital. We had, didn't have any money. <laughs> so, so he says, um, you know, how do you fancy doing this? And I went, yeah, yeah, OK, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be all right for that. So, so, so how, where, where are we going to, you know, how are we going to start? And so it, it was, I, I look back on this, I think it's just amazing. He managed to raise, he managed to get a loan of seven, remember this, 700 pounds, which must have been a lot of money in those, mm -hmm. isn't it? from a, an insurance broker friend of his, Freddie somebody or other. We sold the fa once we decided we were going to do it, we sold the family car, which was a Ford console or something, and bought this old beat-up van from my auntie, Auntie Mildred, <laughs> who'd just come over from South Africa or something, and a um, little seven little Ford thing, um, and we had to and we sold our record collections. Oh, I know. Heartbreak. Heartbreaking. Um, so, and heartbreaking for my dad as well. But but we we you know this, this is what we had. So um, we, um, I can't think what drum kit I had back then. I think I managed to scrape together. I got obviously a discount from Harry Weber, but I had a Oyster Grey Rogers kit. I think That's was great. my first kit. Yeah, Oyster 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 Pearl Rogers kit, and some Zildjian cymbals and stuff. And um, uh, and then I graduated onto that at some point, a pink champagne Ludwig kit, which my son, well, you know, Guy has, still has in Australia. And wheels out regularly. He does. Uh, <laughs> which you can see that drum kit still going uh, three generations later. Still sounds good. Um, so, so Harry, my, my dad, he had to. Uh, he, he 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 worked it out somehow that he could. We could do it uh, by raising this bit of money. Um, and I and I because I knew the reps, mm. I approached the reps for the various companies. And they were very generous, you know. They said, yeah, yeah, we know you, you know, da-da-da-da, appreciate you starting up, we'll give you three or four hundred quid with a credit. Or mm. So it was all done on credit. <clears throat> so you could open up a credit account with them and spend a few hundred quid mm. and get the stock. And Harry Weber was fantastic as well, you know. He was, right. even I said, oh, Harry, we're going to start up on our own, but, you know, we're not going into competition with you or anything else. And he said, oh, wonderful. And he, he gave us, he just actually oh. uh, gave us Loads of stock, so pay me when you can, you know. I mean, I, I he's a I, oh, I love that man, he was yeah. just uh, he was just a special guy, he was my second dad, really, in a way, you know. And um, uh, so uh, we then started, but this just before this, we started to try, so okay, where are we gonna open? Mm -hmm. Where are we gonna, yeah. So, dad, my dad's still in the police force at this time, don't mm -hmm. So he's still working, I'm still working, we're still drumming, both of us, you know, in the evenings, three or four nights a week, and, um, and he had a good, he, he had some good, good work, you know, Dad. But I think it was the clash as well for him, he saw this as an opportunity to stop all the, uh, the problems of, like, he'd, he'd have a gig in the West End or something, mm. and the phone would go, on a Saturday night, this was, mm. you know, I've told you this, and the phone would go, Six or five or six o'clock, Harry, we've got a murder, you know, like you better get down here. Or so. And he had to then, he had to drop everything, find somebody to replace him, get a depth drummer in, mm. because it, there was an unwritten law. Well, there still is, I think, amongst, you know, gigging musicians, particularly on that sort of circuit, you don't let anybody down. You know, mm. if, you take a, if you take a gig, you turn up or you make sure that you put in somebody that's equally as good, you know. Yeah, so we start looking around for premises, I suppose, in London, you know, so obviously because we're living in Fulham and we, uh, yeah. anyway, we start looking everywhere, you know, and I'm, we go around, um, uh, like, you know, Dad's like skiving off from the, from the nick and it's like he can get away for a couple of hours and we, we, we 
anyway, we cannot find anywhere that we remotely think we could afford. Mm. That was the problem. You know, we think, how the hell are we going to, you know, how could we, you know, starting off from scratch, you just got no, no idea. So um, we, we were getting a bit despondent, I think, by this time. And because a lot of our, the family had connections in and around Guildford and Godalming area, they were, uh, the family were um, posted out during the war, you know, uh, evacuated or things like that. Um, and my mum comes, my mum came from a huge family of 11, 11, no, was it, was 11, 11 surviving kids altogether, two brothers and nine sisters. You can imagine. So Christmases were ni- an absolute nightmare. I used to get sort of sore, you know. But, oh. <laughs> um, but so we knew that area. We were always going from London uh, to Guildford and Godalming and Hazelmere, mm-hmm. so where where all the family lived, pretty much all that. And they were they were police as well. They were, right. I had a couple of uncles that were in the police in uh, Hazelmere. Was he was uh, uniform um, head of the station there. Um, so some good connections. And my other uncle, he rose to really senior level at Mount Brown in Guildford, uh, Peter Jones. But he died at the age of forty two, a heart attack. You know, like just dropped dead. Sometime back then, but he was, you know, he was uh, quite high up. I don't know what, what rank he'd achieved. So we knew, you know, so we were familiar with that area, and, uh, and we were always bashing backwards and forwards in our little old um, Ford, whatever it was, you know, little Ford, those old cars, backwards and forwards, uh, weekends, you know, like to go and see the family and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we knew this area, and I still to this day do not know why we but we found this little old uh, derelict shop right in stoke fields it was called in those days this derelict shop which was a greengrocer's and the bloke he had one arm apparently this greengrocer <laughs> oh i come to the story he had one arm and with one arm he was building a bomb proof shelter because that was in the days of the i don't know some sort of cold war thing isn't it <laughs> and he was and he decided he was going to shore up the cellar you know with like two foot of concrete so he got halfway up that lot and died and <laughs> <laughs> i think probably probably hard work it's a bit like the one-armed wallpaper hanger you know hardest working man in, <laughs> in the in the country so this is a story. So we, we never we never met him. So this, but anyway, this place was on the market, and but it was a derelict greengrocer's. You know, there was there was and mice nests, and you know where they had all the potatoes and the vegetables and and all this stuff, and it was empty. But it had a flat over the top and at the back. So there was the shop at the front, and at the back we had a kitchen and a little bathroom on the top, which was quite nice because we, in fact, I never said, did we? When we were in Battersea up to the age of seven, we only had an outside loo and the tin bath on the wall, you know? Um, and so moving to Fulham into the police flat was absolute luxury because we had an indoor bathroom and toilet, you know, it was a fantastic. I must admit, I cannot, <laughs> done, yes, I haven't lived, have I? It's no, but just... we get into this thing, Guy and I get into this, and he goes, he goes, luxury, luxury, you know, outside toilet, God, we had pot in ground, you know, we had to go on. <laughs> so, and then we, you have to come up with something even more. Even you know, more. Even more. It's so, a bit Monty Python, so, this, yeah. isn't it? Luxury, you had all in the ground core, you know, we had to travel two miles <laughs> in the stream, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, so we used to have a lot of fun with that. So trying to go back to those days. So, um, so we found this shop in, uh, and it had the kitchen in the back and a little bathroom and three bedrooms upstairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
cellar down below, which is a, um, a semi-built bomb shelter. Um, and it was, I don't know how many square foot it was, but it wasn't very many, was it? It was two shops knocked together. Um, and we got, there's pictures of it, obviously, yeah. inside. So, um, Dad said, well, how about this then? You know, and in those days, Stoke Fields was uh, a road to nowhere. You, you had to come off, you could only get into it from North Street. And you went down Stokefields and it banjoed round on itself. You know, you couldn't, the York Road, there wasn't the York Road mm. for people that know the area, the York Road wasn't there, you know. Mm. It was, uh, there was a petrol station right next door to us. And we, we have got some, we've got some photos, we have got some old black and white photos of what it was like in those days, you know, when we moved, uh, when we moved in. And the, the building we've subsequently moved to uh, in Hayden Place, um, which got renamed. So there's this little old place, and Guildford is like a one-horse town. The only other music shop was Rumbelows, I think it was. Yes. Right. It was called Rumbelows, which was uh, like a... Um, general store, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, or Barnes and Avis, it became called, did it, or something like that. It was, um, it was like a general, like Curry's, mm. yeah? They did, you know, electrical stuff, and um, uh, so that was the local competition, and I thought, oh, no competition there, you know, sort of like, because they weren't really a specialist music shop, yeah. you know, they were... Um, and we are looking now, sixty late nineteen sixty three. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Beatles have, you know, uh, the Beatles are riding high. Um, there's, there's this massive beat boom, and every kid on the block wants to be a guitar player. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no product about. You yeah. know, there were, you know, I was thinking back, like, you know, you had some European manufacturers like Framus. Mm-hmm. Framers, um, what were some of the other ones? You know, like um, weird little German and Swiss guitar makers and a bit of stuff. There were, obviously, Gibson and Fender around. Vox was big by that time. Marshall, so, it's, you know, it's a good bit of kit. Um, Tricks on drums, remember them? Tricks no. on? No? Okay, so they were they were really big at one time. And then Sonor, was that still yeah. going, aren't they? German. But Tricks, I think, got a feeling Tricks on was German. Uh, but they made these weird, weird sort of drums which are like conical shaped, you know. Um, you probably can Google it and get some pictures of it and things like that. But uh, and uh, so we're so we're in this wonderful beat boom. This 1963, uh, and uh, so we we and Dad said, Dad says, well, what do you what do you think about this then? Because this I remember well, I remember how much it cost. It was four thousand two hundred pounds, and we could buy the freehold. He bought the freehold. Yeah, so it, it was it was four four thousand two hundred quid. I'm pretty sure that was the amount. And um, and I it just it was a, an amazing risk for, for Harry to take, you know. Like when I think back, yeah, real gamble. But he he worked out that you know with the little loan we had, the amount of credit that I could get from the wholesalers, the help from Harry, our gig money, yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> his police pension, which was index linked, and it was a right. good police pension. Mm-hmm. So he'd worked it out that we could survive even if we you know only turned over. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think that was, and my I think that was my dad's vision for it, the dream. He'd seen Harry Weber out, you know, like a nice lifestyle, just pottering about in a music shop and selling a bit bit here and there. And if he didn't like the the, you know, if he didn't like the some hoity-toity woman that came in and said, "Do some violin strings," you know, and "Is that all got?" You know. So, so I was always a sort of go-between. Yeah, you know, hang on a minute, madam. You know. Yes, Andersons isn't like that anymore. <laughs> and we, it's difficult because I, I'm like, it's a real shame I haven't got a good photo, you know, like a vivid memory of some of this stuff because it was funny and we built, we built a trap door to get stuff in and out of this cellar. We didn't have any stairs in those days, so we decided to build a trap door. And, and we used to, 
we used to pull it up and open it and put a ladder down, you know, and we used to use that as a storeroom, you know, and some, one day some guy fell down. <laughs> so there was no health and, you know, health and safety, you know. And you think today, you know, God, we could have got sued and all sorts of things. But So, uh, yeah, anyway, so it's 63, so there's a fantastic, you know, movement in, in music and... And um, I th- when did the pirate ships start? You know, it was Radio Caroline. You know, the pirate radio stations, mm-hmm. you know? I thought that was all ready. Well, they, 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 it was, this was all kicking off around mm. this time, you know, so like, it was just exploding. You know, so, um, and, um, and Great Britain, you know, everybody wanted a dose of the Union Jack. Mm. You know, we were flying high. It was, we were so proud to be British, you know, like we were leading the world in fashion. You know, like Carnaby Street, and I used to go up to the West End and the fashion and the music scene, and you know, it was just amazing. So, so it, 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 timing-wise, you know, mm. I don't think you could couldn't do it today, you know. But the timing was so right for us, and uh, so we. Uh, so, what happened was my dad stayed on in the police force. I, uh, I, um, I quit Harry Webber's uh, with his blessing, fortunately. And started uh, running back and forwards up the A3 between uh, Fulham and Guildford, and started gutting the shop, you know, on on my own, you know. So, so used to go up there for a few days, and, and Dad would come and join me weekends, you know. So we'd, and it, you know, again, he was he was amazing, you know. It's like he'd go, oh, I know, I think we need a new, we need a stud wall there or something. And I'd go, oh, you know. Hang on, and he'd disappear out in the garden, you know, <laughs> and he'd come in, you know, and he'd had it sort of all built and plonk <laughs> it in. And it, was just, it was just amazing like that, you know, sort of could do stuff. So we used to sleep on a mattress. We used to sleep on this old mattress upstairs in, the, in, one, of the, in one of the bedrooms um, with a little kettle going, you know, on the floor. Uh, and so uh, that's, what, that's how we got the shop ready. So it was all done on absolute shoestring, you know. It was real... Interesting. We used. We made everything. We made the sign. We cut the letters out out of plywood. If you see, you see. I, the, I think we have got a picture. Or of that. painted. I think yeah. we used to. You know, and we we handmade. We just handmade everything. You know, we did all the fittings ourselves and stuff. And this um, uh, pegboard was great in those days. You know, pegboard and bent nails. You know, for, <laughs> for fittings. Uh, That's what he looks like. That's dead. Dead. I can remember Dad so much like this, like as he is like that. This is the first, uh, the first few weeks. Yeah. In the shop, you can see that uh, they've got the new instruments behind them. Mind you, we was we spent quite a long time cleaning it up. Why did we have to clean it up? Because it was a vegetable shop. Greengrocers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look at all the potatoes on the stairs. Daddy had me cleaning the, the shop floor for two pound on a Saturday. You? Yeah. Or, or was it me? Oh, and you. You, <laughs> you were the stalwart, I was the weekender. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember what the first day's takings were? Oh, about nine pence. <laughs> <laughs> and Dad, Dad's looking up and saying, how much done today for you? <laughs> He said, I didn't tell you. That's because Pete was having to... Uh, <laughs> Look after everything. Do, do everything while Dad was finishing out his few months in the police.
So, yeah, we, so we opened uh, on D-Day. I always remember this, why it's a, a very special date for me, the 6th of June, 1964, uh, we opened. And, um, and, I, and I was on my own with mum, so I think we obviously must have moved in there a week or two before, so, so dear, dear Sylvia, uh, my mum, she was mum to everybody, you know, to come out in the shop. She was a lovely lady, mm-hmm. wasn't she? She was just had such a, a charm about her, everybody loved her. And uh, she didn't know anything about the about anything any gear, but she she would have a go, you know. She'd yeah. sort of and she'd make people a cup of tea, or you know, like she also every time if you had any breakfast, do you want yeah. you know like <laughs> all these these um, you know local sort of gigging musicians would come in looking like you know hungover. She goes, do you want some egg and bacon? <laughs> wow, this is nice. great. this is yeah. a great music shop. This one. <laughs> so. Um, so we so we we got started and uh, it just went berserk, you know. Then my dad finally handed his notice in to finish in the September. And uh, what did he do? He took leave. He took his you know annual leave and anything else. And he then came down full time. He was he was working. He was running backwards mm-hmm. and forwards between Guildford and and Hammersmith because I think that's where that was the last station he ended up at. Um, and uh, juggling days off and all that sort of stuff, whatever they do, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then full-time September in 1964. And it was just unbelievable. It was just, you know, we could not get enough kit. Right. And you probably, you, you probably can't imagine, or you might be able to imagine, because it was a bit like that here at times, wasn't it, when we reopened in 1991 with yeah. queues of people on a Saturday and this little shop, we used to have people queuing, right, to get in the store. And we had to have a guy just saying, what, one in, one out, you know. Cause, mad. Yeah, I was just absolute mad. And we, and, but you couldn't get enough kit. And when the rep, oh, I always remember the rep from Boozy and Hawks coming down, because we used to do Ajax drums. There was another mm-hmm. drum mate which were made by Boozy and Hawks, I think. And he'd say, oh, we've only got red ones and blue ones. Right, we'll have 25 kits of each colour, you know. we Literally, that, literally that kind of... That's those sort of numbers, you know, like we'd wow. have 25 red ones, 25 blue ones, in the hope that you could get two or three, you know, oh, some allocation. You know, right. Like, mm. um, and there was there were harmony guitars. They were, they were Gretsch, um, all that sort of stuff. Um, but we were general music shop as well, right? Mm. So it was, you know, in amongst all that lot, we're trying to deal with the remnants of the British Empire in Guildford, the, the classical musicians. <laughs> You know, sort of doing brass and woodwind, and uh, we didn't do pianos then or key keyboards because they hadn't, re- they weren't really around. Um, and um, so it was a bit difficult, you know, being a general music shop, you know. But we, but our our keen. Was there know. any famous people in Guildford, or was that still very much? Was that a big difference? You notice moving out of London, that that sort of the you know the the big famous guys just were all still in London later. Yeah, mm-hmm. later, quite a few of them relocated to uh, live in and around this area, you know, like Genesis and all those other mm-hmm. guys and Clappers. And, um, well, Eric was born in mm-hmm. uh, Ripley, came from Ripley. Um, and people, so there were quite a few, yeah. Um, but um, not, not, you know, like. Just mainly I, I, local yeah, working musicians? Yeah, mainly youngsters. Yeah, youngsters. Mm-hmm. That was out, you know, it was the. Everybody wanted a guitar, and the, and the music scene was really good. But Guildford was a very, you know, very par- parochial mm. country town. Then you know, like they still talked a bit like that. They didn't know. talk like they that. They did. They had a slight accent, <laughs> not as bad as down in the West Country where I am now. 
<laughs> but uh, but they did. They came, they used there was a, I tell you what the cattle market the yes. uh, the cows and sheep they used to wheel them in at the top of North Street. We still had a live cattle market this is before Slyfield Green was opened yeah. and the abattoir. So they used to herd the <laughs> herd the cows and the pigs and the sheep or bring them in up to the cattle market at the top of North Street. You know on a on a weekend or whenever it was. And the um, and the and nothing happened very quickly. That was I always remember that. If you wanted anything done, you know, like any utilities sorted out, gas or electricity or your phone fixed, you know, some bloke would come down with a pair of welly boots and a cloth hat, you know, and go arr, arr, like that, you know. And you were you're lucky if you got it done, you know. And I saw, you know, because coming out of London, yeah. the pace was the pace was just half of what different nowadays. It's almost yeah. like a satellite of London, isn't it, Guildford? But back then it was very, you know, very quiet country town. It was lovely, you know. In, it was lovely in some respects. You know. so, what, so what were the challenges? So you, it, obviously you, you, the, I guess most businesses that start up, the challenge will be that there's not enough customers and that it's all, everything's hand to mouth. But by the sounds of things, your challenge was the opposite, really, just managing uh, the demand. Getting the stock. Yeah. So Getting the stock um, and... Um, um, and and um, managing my dad, you know. Um, well, that's because that's. <laughs> I mean, people, people won't know. It, it, that's an interesting dynamic, then, isn't it? Because you've got a, you've got the the your dad, mm. granddad, who wanted to open the business as a way to take a bit of a take his foot off the gas a bit. And exactly. Just, yeah. But, but and you're he's fifty, you know. Yeah. He's but you're coming. You're much more ambitious. Yeah. And could see the opportunity. So yeah. how, how did you? How did that sort of manifest itself? Um, very, uh, in a very difficult relationship ensuing. It mm. ensued, you know, very, very difficult, you know. Uh, but at the same time, it was very ambivalent, you know, like love, love, hate thing, you know. Mm -hmm. We'd sort of terrible stand up rows about things, you know, because he, and he was very, um, what's the word, very authoritarian, you know, mm. like he wouldn't, wouldn't discuss anything. It's going to be like this, you know. And, um, uh, he was great with customers, you know, like he, but behind the scenes, I used to get blamed for everything. You know, I felt I did anyway. Mm -hmm. I used to, you know, if anything went wrong, it was my bloody fault, you know. And he, he pulled me out. What I hated most was he bawled me out in front of customers, you know, um, and made me feel like about this big, you know, which is so. Um, and that, so it was difficult, you know, it was mm -hmm. a difficult period. So I, I um, so we, we go forward. Pro so significant period for me was 66, I think. But like the business is going great, you know. Like we're 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 covering the rent, we're covering the no, not the rent, the mortgage. So we had a quite a big mortgage. So that was one thing. That obviously, my dad had negotiated. Mm -hmm. uh, whether we had a bank loan, I don't know. We had a weird bank manager back then, you know, NatWest bank manager. I used to go in and see him in Guildford, and I said, "What do you sell? Guitars? Guitars? Electric guitars?" Yeah, you know, drums and things like that. Well, who buys those sorts of things? You say, you know, and I said, oh Christ, you know. <laughs> you, know I, you know, I knew. You know, that was that was why I said I was telling to you about my my um, thing about authority figures. You know, because yeah. it was here was somebody who was in a, a uh, in authority, and I couldn't get what I wanted. You know, I just wanted a bloody bank loan. I wanted an overdraft. You know, and he was standing in my way, but he was, you know, he like he had the power, didn't he? So I used to, I used to really, you know, find that very difficult to come up against anybody that, um, you know, had to battle my way around people like that. Um, but anyway, so we get to, yeah, we we manage, we're doing really well, and as I say, the business is booming, and um, uh, and I think around that time, sixty six, then I think that was the first time 
which is, is interesting to think back, we started to see the contingents of Japanese people coming over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like groups of three or four Japs and they would tour, go around and visit all the music shops in the country. Uh, I'm still going back into London to buy from the wholesalers and things like that. Um, and and I, around that time, we did our first, I did my first deal, you know, mm-hmm. big deal, bought a couple of hundred, Fletcher, Coppock and Newman. Are they still going? No. Fletcher, Coppock and... Well, they were Fletcher... Fletcher, yeah. Co- Fletcher and Coppock was the name. Right. They were a wholesaler, general mm-hmm. music wholesaler. And we got this... Uh, I got a deal. I, <laughs> I went up there once and they, and they had a batch of uh, classical guitars. Like, and they were, they were really nice, but the, the tables had, had twisted very, very, very slightly, you know? Um, so the action was a bit low. And they were, I think they were about, hun- I don't know, there were a hundred or more of them. And I made them an offer for this, for this hundred, for a, like a container load of these guitars. And I went back and went back and I said, hey, Dad, you know, like, I've managed to pick these, I managed to pick these guitars up, look, they're really brilliant. We can sell them for about 25 quid or something like that, you know, and I bought them for five or six quid. I don't know what the figures were. And he went ballistic, you know. <laughs> so it'd be, be things like that, you see, you know. So, um, I, you know, we, I said, right, I've got the credit. They're going, oh, we can buy them on the credit, and we can pay them back as we sell them. Don't worry, I've negotiated all that, you know. So, so that was a bit of an insight into, um, you know, things that you could do, like seeing opportunities. I, and I think that's a lot, was a lot of the, uh, where I, I wanted, if I saw an opportunity, I wanted to go for it. Mm. Yes, yeah, so 1966, I suppose. So by that time, we're doing really well. We're covering our overheads, um, and both Dad and I are drumming every night. We, I think one of the things that I do remember, which is funny, is we used to, to bulk the stock out, we used to put our drum kits in the shop window yep. during the day, and then, you know, then we had to both take them out at night to go out and do a gig and put them back in the morning, you know, so... so it's, we used, were oh. the gigs in London still predominantly? I was still doing some gigs in London. Yeah. Um, so you're clocking up the miles as well. Yeah, but we, the band, I got into this band in Guildford. Right. And we used to do all the nightclubs around the coast as well. You know, like Little mm. Hampton, Worthing. There was the Mexican hat, the top hat. We used to, we'd travel quite a way. We used to, we, we were done. Which band was that? Oh, I had two or three bands. I was in various bands. Um... The other 2000 was the little three-piece cream-style yeah. band I had. Um, and um, But the band that we did weren't pro with was uh, the Just Five, you know, that mm-hmm. seven-piece band. Was that great? What a great, great name, wasn't it? The Just Five and we were seven-piece. Um, but, you know, this, so this is coming up. So 1966, um, around that time, I think it was 66, 67, I was getting, me and Dad were like, you know, like having a bit of a, yeah. uh, a problem. And mum, dear old mum was trying to be peacemaker, you know, between us and things like that. And I don't know, I must have been, I look back, I was very, I was an angry young man, you know, in those days. I like that tip very, um, am I still like that? <laughs> not, no, not Hang for on. a while. Hang on. Yeah. P45. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no. um, but, yeah, frustrated, I suppose, mm. you know, frustrated. I really wanted to, you know, I see an opportunity everywhere, I wanted to do this and do that and... Um, and Dad, Dad, I realised subsequently, Dad wasn't a businessman. You know, mm. he he wasn't really interested in being the boss of a business. He just wanted to, you know, play. He wanted the freedom to be able to enjoy his music and run his dance band. Because by this mm-hmm. time, he had the Harry Anderson organ trio, organ trio, and yeah, 
and Farty Fee's organs were just starting to come in then. You know, we used to get the old farmers coming in. You know, can I have one of them Farty Feezers, please? <laughs> Sorry. Absolutely no one in Guildford talks like this at all. No, they did There's a huge then. catchment area Hang down on, this, to Cornwall this or something. This is 40 years ago, isn't it? 50 years ago. How long ago are we talking? 50 years ago something, you know. It's crazy. It's a long time. It is a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... Uh, so we were having problems. So the band, we, the band was doing better, more and more work, and we were in with an agency in London called the Arthur Howes Agency, who managed quite a few well-known acts, and um, we got offered a tour. So this is, I think this is before I busted my leg. Yeah, At, and so and also around this time, aged about nineteen or twenty, I got into horse riding. That was my mm-hmm. big hobby. You know. I like I love that as much as drumming, you know. So I, you know, I used to go riding every opportunity on Sundays and things like that. And I was a latecomer to it, as you mm. can imagine. Nights at nineteen, I went with my sister Debbie first time, and she said, "Come along." I said, "Yeah, get her off. You never get me on one of those things, you bloody bitches, you know." <laughs> so, but anyway, I, you know, the first time I got absolutely hooked, and the riding country around outside Guildford, you know, around um, uh, Blackheath, and that was just magnificent. So anyway, so I put that in because that will, yes. will, will go. That will be quite pertinent to what happened a bit later on. So the first thing was I get the opportunity. The band gets an offer to go professional, and we get an offer to be the backing band for American artists that were had a number one hit in this country, um, or you know, or were, were quite high up, and they would come over on tour. You know? So uh, and we do a two week tour. So you know, like we do with the whole mm-hmm. of the UK and back and playing the West End clubs and the Flamingo Club was always a, you know... We, yeah. Uh, do you know what? I always, remember, I always thought about this. We, when I, when it, in one band I was in, we used to back Georgie Fame. Georgie Fame mm-hmm. and the Blue Flames were playing in the Flamingo Club, which is in Wardour Street, I think it was in those days. It might, might not have been. But it was a very, you know, really famous black... Loads of black musicians in there and lots of, you know, the guys from... Uh, all the black guys from uh, Notting Hill and all around that way. Um, so it was a real buzzy place, you know, um, and um, and they used to get lots of guest artists. And they used to go until three or four in the morning, you know, when the club closed. Geordie Flame and Blue Flames. And I used to go and watch a drummer called Phil Stevens who taught Ginger Baker. Okay. You know, drug addicts, all <clears throat> bloody heroin addicts. I, I, I'm amazed how I I, did, I escaped the drug thing, you know. Yeah. Like, or, or just, you know, never, never touched me, I think, because I was, I don't know, too young or whatever. But... Um, some um, not John Mayle, another another guy um, come to me. Alexis Corner, does that name ring a bell? Okay. I don't think so. Google him. You know, okay. he was one of the. He was Alexis Corner was with Long John Baudry and all this. Mm-hmm. This this was sort of the British, you know, underground music scene going on. There's lots of these guys doing you know, fabulous stuff. Grand Bond organisation. I was talking about a guy in, I met in Exmouth, my hometown. He was he was a huge fan of. Um, the Grand Bond organisation, and we were talking about Gino Washington who's, and the Ram Jam band, who we used to support mm-hmm. around all the university gigs as well. So anyway, so this band, we were doing really well. You know, we, we I don't think we were like, well, we were fairly, fairly competent, I suppose, but we were doing really well. We used to do R and B, so we loved, you know, like um, our influences were uh, Wilson Pickett, James Brown, uh, and that stuff. I mm-hmm. loved playing that, you know, real heavy, you know, sort of James Brown style stuff. Um, and it was good for me because I got out of... I stopped all the fiddly-twiddly stuff, you know, I used to become... Because my dad used to try and influence me with Joe Morello, you know, from, take, from the Dave Brubeck Quartet, you know. 
because we've got photos of Dave, Dave um, sorry, Joe Morello, famous, famous drummer. He was brilliant. He, we used to get these guys over and they used to do, uh, we used to do drum clinics at the Stoke Hotel, yeah. you know, so... So my dad was always trying to influence me that way, you know. So and I'm, I'm my, you know, my love was heavy rock, hard rock. So I'm sort of, you know, trying to trying to develop both sides. It never went anywhere, I don't think. Um, so we get these, we do these tours, and I've got to say, Dad, well, I've got this offer, you know, um, and I and I'm sort of also thinking mm, maybe. Maybe this is my life is gonna. I'm gonna break from the business, mm -hmm. and because I, you know, can't can't take working with, with dad yeah. anymore, and I'm gonna you know, gonna make a career in music. So, so we've been doing more and more work on a part time basis because all the guys in the band were all were mm -hmm. all had jobs, and then we had the you know the big decision that comes to every band. <laughs> Shall we? <laughs> yeah. Can we actually quit our jobs, hand our notices in, and go pro? You know. So we did, and um, we hired in. I think we hired in a trumpet player um, who was a musician, and we we accepted these gigs. Anyway, so we did these. You know, we did two tours. So I was I disappeared. You know, off, and Harry was was he was a bit upset about that because okay. he had to run the thing on his own. You know, and and he didn't he didn't know much about electric guitars. He you know he, yeah. he knew his drums, but he didn't know much about any anything else, or didn't um, you know didn't want to really I suppose mm -hmm. that's the way um, so 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 I came back off of those tours and um, and and I had to make a re I had to make a decision you know so you did the tours yeah did yeah, the, you did the tours did so the how, tours how, roughly how long were you away for oh, about a month or so oh, not, over a month yeah, okay yeah, so yeah, not like, like a year or anything no 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 no, no. Mm -hmm. it was only about a month and uh, then there was a lot of uh, a lot of other work um you know like where i had to disappear from the shop going mm -hmm. up to doing recording studios work mm -hmm. we did tv we did yeah. um we might did... have it might have a sneaky photo coming on screen now of you on television at some point or other with, i don't uh, think so no not yeah, yeah, ready it... steady go not but before ready steady go i'll show you <laughs> hang on i don't believe it uh... <laughs> Um, it was something like Kathy McGowan, I think it was, was the was the host of that. Is that really sneaky? No, that's not TV. I thought that was you on TV. No, this is just a band. Look, that's me. What a dipstick I looked in, <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I wasn't photogenic, you know, at all. So, so where's it? that from? That's, I always thought that was you doing a band. No, that's Ricky and the Secrets. Ricky and the Secrets. And the guy there, for anybody that's a fisherman... Fisherman. They would know on the extreme left-hand side. His name's Chris Ball, and Chris Ball is the most famous now carp fisherman <laughs> in the world. <laughs> He's, you know, how, and I met him out in the Gambia, like seven, many years later, about 10, 15 years ago. I met him out in the Gambia, you know, like deep, going deep sea fishing, and he was telling me about his life. I hadn't seen him for all those years, you know. Hi, Chris, how you doing? And he tells me he, he sort of got into carp fishing and writing books about it and all that sort of thing. And he is now, seriously, you Google this guy, he's the world's leading authority on wow. carp fishing. So there's, there's a little... And the bass player, apparently... Anecdotal things. He got into sheep farming. He's written a book about... Uh, he holds the Guinness World Record for Large boots, the fastest shearing of a sheep. It's really amazing what all the rest of the band went on to achieve. Um, <laughs> who knew? Anyway, so, so our arch rivals were um, who were they? The Stormsville Shakers in Guildford area. The yes. Stormsville Shakers and with Phil, uh, Phil Goodhands, Phil Goodhands, which I mean, okay, which is 
a random thing as uh, my phone buzzed a minute ago and I've just missed a call from uh, Paul Guntate. Paul Guntate, uh, I don't, don't know. Phil's son, yeah. which is like, uh, yeah. what are the chances? Who I know from yeah. another Gil- Guildford. It's like a hotbed. Well, of, there was, there was of, a quite a bit of stuff going on there. You know, like, I suppose as in most other towns and cities, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, not, not as much as like some of the other stuff that was going on in Birmingham and Manchester and you know, Leeds yes. and all the, those other towns. But... Um, anyway, so there was a good... So where did I get to? You know, what was I doing? Um, so you've got back from the tour and got you've got to yeah. have a, a moment where you're either going, what yeah. am I doing? That's it. Yeah, where's my... You know, what have I got to do? What have, what the fork do? in the road. Yeah. And I think I I was very... Um, I wanted to be a millionaire. No, it wasn't right. Really a, I mean, I, sort of, I was just convinced I would one day be a millionaire. I don't know how. How are you going to do that? You know? So, um, but it's a sort of driving thing that you've got when you're 25 or whatever it is. Um, how I got married by then? I think got married in 1969, so a bit later. Anyway, I had to make this, you know, monumental emotional decision. Was I going to, you know, yeah. stay in the business or was I going to cut loose? You know, because and that was one of my emotional problems. I'd never left home, you know. Right. <laughs> so, you know, like most people get the opportunity to leave home and go yeah. and like having a having a taste of it, going off and. And touring because I never went to university or anything mm. like that. So um, uh, you know, I sort of felt like I was still in, still tied to be mum's apron strings, you know. And she was a bit like that. She was, oh, darling. And I said, hang on, mum, I'm 55. You know, so <laughs> whatever it was I went later on. <laughs> Come on, son. You know, do you want a, do you want a butty sandwich? Um, so uh, yeah, so emotionally very, very traumatic, really. Um, anyway, I decided. I made the decision, didn't I, to suit? I, no, I don't think I want to go pro. Um, because, and I think probably because Dad would have, you know, I don't know, I couldn't sort of leave him. You felt you'd have let him down, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah I would have, I, would, I couldn't really leave. Although, you know, no, I, yeah, I suppose that's what I felt, you know. I, and I never thought back then that, okay, he could get somebody to replace me, I'm sure he could, you know, mm. like, but we, we never thought like that somehow, you know. It was. Um, so, um, so I go back, and you know, and you know, we continued to sort of laugh one day and threaten to kill each other the next, you know, all that stuff. Um, and then the next big move. So business is doing really well. Um, we we still can't get stock. I talked mentioned Japanese, didn't I? Mm-hmm. So Japanese stuff isn't around at this time. But all these contingents were coming over. Um, you know, with cameras and lovely Nikon cameras photographing all the stuff, interviewing us about what the trends were and things that we liked and what we didn't like, and they would do this and their little notebooks, you know, all right. And uh, tell you what, what's weird, oh. that still happens now. Oh, is it? We get every year. We'll get a, a from usually from Ibanez Hoshino, oh, Ibanez, okay. and they'll come round. And again, it's 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 bizarre because it's almost like it is very. If it's super, super polite, very yep. quiet, very... Yeah. Uh, not, they don't want to take up too much of your time, but you can see them all making notes about trying to predict what the trends are in yeah. guitar music and stuff, yeah. but... Yeah, well, yeah. That, I mean, that was the start of the, you know, the, the invasion, really. You know? mm. I mean, just... Uh, and then within... And I, when I, I looked back and I was telling somebody else, you know, within 10 years, in a, a single decade, mm. um, they, ha- they were dominant, mm. you know, in... So much stuff, you know. So sixty-eight, seventy, and that was when I went over there for the first mm. time. Uh, I was, it was a guest of Yamaha. I went to, mm-hmm. to look around at all the factories, Nippon Gaki, in nineteen seventy-eight. Ah, oh, just mind-blowing, you know. And like by I think by that time, Yamaha flutes—they'd taken mm. all the flute market. 
And they were just so. It's still the world's biggest. They're still oh, by the mile. world's biggest. And they, and and what used to amaze me was that the Yamaha Musical Instrument Division is a tiny mm-hmm. subsidiary of Nippon Gaki, or it was back then. And they used to make oil tankers. You know, they'd be making outboard engines and you know all that stuff. And, and but there's still the resources they poured into musical instruments from from get go. You know, their own mm. trees and uh, raw materials and. Piano factory was just, you know, you just couldn't imagine this piano factory, these grand pianos, you know, going down a slow-moving belt as far as the eye could see, you know, and all these, all these little Japanese girls, you know, doing a bit here and a bit there, and got walking along and then walking back, you know, and it's just like Roland, um, you know, we we're developing stuff back then, so lots of electronics coming in, yeah, um, and then, and then I, um, uh, so we got the opportunity of buying the shop. Or getting a lease on it, I think, first of all. We took a lease, that's right. So this was to rent the shop opposite. Came on the market. It was a built a decorators. That's, mm-hmm. that's the other one with the funny old canopy over the front. Yeah. You know, the, and that's was what, three or four times the size? Three or four times yeah, bigger. Yeah, yeah. We had about four uh, about, no, about two two thousand square feet there. That was mm-hmm. also but it was a top floor and a bottom floor. Mm-hmm. It was the most weird shape. It wasn't a ninety one ninety degree angle. No, it, it was, was a, a weird shaped building. Weird one. shaped building. Mm. And um, by that time, I think we had also moved into doing electronic organs because the electronic organ market had just like went like the beat market. You know, every, you know, everybody wanted to bloody. And I hated, you know, hated that <laughs> that um, that genre. You know, like the the home organist. Yeah. Home organist entertains. You know, that sort of stuff. And um, so uh, so we were doing organs um, and uh, but there was quite a bit of electronic keyboards. Uh, Vox, the Vox Continental, mm-hmm. you know, was a good uh, and Fender Rhodes pianos, you know. So oh, that's great. Oh, wasn't that just a, yeah? It's the uh, best sounding. Yes, yeah. But the things they were, you know, like the, to keep them keep them going with, the, they? with the tines, yeah. Right. You know, and the and the clavinet, the Hona clavinet was another one. Did the, you ever do the Wurlitzer one? Because I remember seeing a guy, I was in a band once with a guy that had a word, like a Fender Rhodes, yeah. but a word, it's a version. It just sounded great. Yeah, they did, yeah. But the clavinet was a, a great, uh, you know, the Hona clavinet was like a, like a clavinova, you know. Like, right. But it used to use um, metal tine, you know, like a, like a metal thing. Oh, okay. Look, but a sticky pad that came down on it, you know. So the sticky pad, used to, you press the key and the sticky, that's how it used to work. The, the, the pad was stuck to the time mm-hmm. and as you press the key it lifted the time and released it and it came back down and stuck on it and then released it you know so you've got this sort of weird sound yeah it. It, was, it was it was very popular because you know, these were the first um, keyboards and things so um, so that's that sort of stuff was around which was quite interesting anyway so we so we get the opportunity of moving or yeah this opp- opportunity right going over the road it's a Big, it's quite an expensive lease. Mm-hmm. It's a lease in those days. And this is 1968, I think, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, 68. But it's a big shop, so we can do, you know, we can do, display lots more gear, brass and woodwind, and, you know, more amplification and everything else like that. And I'm sort of going, but in those days, I didn't have much of a, I didn't, I wasn't doing the books or the, mm. you know, the finances or anything like that. So, I was just going, well, yeah, come on, you know, we can do it. And so, but the responsibility, obviously, for doing, you know, for keeping tabs on the, yeah. the money and doing the management accounting was, was Dad's. And I didn't really have much of a, a handle on this and appreciation until much later. I realised mm-hmm. 
key. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was two or three years later I realised how key this was to, to, to business, you know, to running a successful business. Anyway. And um, so we go, we, we move over there, lock, stock and barrel. And of course, it's, you know, from, it goes berserk again. You know, like if you can think about that, it's like we've got more stock, we've got more room. So, um, and we, we began to employ guys, you know, so we had, um, uh, you know, I think around that time, John Hulk joined us, Johnny. Um, and other guys, there were so many good guys around. Um, Jane joined us for the first time. Is Steve Wright? Steve Wright, I remember. Steve Wright. Oh, there's loads of good guys around. Yeah. So we had we had some fantastic staff, some really mm -hmm. good guys around. And then, uh, but things are getting worse with me and Dad, you know, and that sort of thing. So as soon as we started employing people, Dad didn't really want to be, you know, the boss. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he didn't want to sort of, well, they wanted, you know, he, so he used to blame me for everything, like, again, even more, big time now. And so he'd push me, so he'd, I, he'd make me go and do all the negotiating, you know, with the bank manager, with the bloody lawyers, the accountants, negotiate the lease, you know, doing all that stuff. Well, no, you go on, you couldn't go and do all that. And, yeah. stuff. and if anything went wrong, or, like, yeah, it wasn't, it was, so, it was my fault. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was difficult at times. How did, then, you, how did you resolve that ultimately? Uh, I, I decided. Well, this is going, comes forward quite a way, right? Because uh, you were around back then. So you started. When, what, when, no, I, when well, would you? When were you about fourteen? When you started as a Saturday boy? So what, uh, what late eighties, you know, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, oh, something like quite that. A long way forward. Yeah, then. I don't. I don't ever remember late 80s. working with Grant. I have vague, vague recollections of going in there and seeing him working in there but I'm in what? my mind I'm thinking I'm maybe going through all the going through all the smoke in the shop yeah because we always used, everyone used to smoke and dad yeah, and I were, were like we used to we used to say we were like the um we were the, the uh, team coaches you know Surrey we used to smoke for Surrey was... and we always had a fag going on the county and all mm. that stuff and um and winding forward a little bit we people won't remember this but in the in the 70s we we had this thing called the three-day week when the miners went on strike we had no power for for four days out of every seven, you know, so we only had pass that we used to have to, you know, like we couldn't demonstrate any electrical what? gear. And so, dear old, dear old John Hulk, yeah, um, who many Anderton's customers from that time will will remember, and who often used to think John was my dad because I think John would be seen <laughs> in the store more than more than you were. But John well, tells a story this is later. This yeah, is this is a bit later. later. Yeah. But John tells a story uh, when you first started selling um, stage lighting. You know, oh, yeah. dis Good. disco lighting or stage that's lighting. That's when we opened and opened across the road. And that uh, is that. Do you want to tell the story about how the fire brigade had to come out one night? Because well, we got we were stoned or something like that and set, <laughs> set fire to the curtains. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it was a bit. Uh, we, we, we used no, we used to do we used to do some crazy stuff over there. You know, it was so it was. We're coming forward a few years oh, we, now. Okay. Yeah, no, we're coming forward into the seventies. But I mean, it was worth it because we used to. That's, this was the days of um, when uh, Pink Floyd played Stoke Hotel in Guildford. Yep. You know, before or Wooden Bridge and Stoke. It well, was Wooden I Bridge remember seeing them in the Stoke yeah. Hotel with these with the psychedelic lighting, this Sploderscope, it was called, wasn't it? Remember that thing? No. The liquid wheel. Do you remember right. those liquid wheel projectors? No. Don't people remember? No, those? I wasn't born then. Dad. No, I know. But <laughs> okay, so well, you you must Google this stuff because it was. Well, that was that was the psychedelia thing, you know. Like, it was all these um, uh, they were making these liquid wheels, and we used to go up to a place in Chiswick that manufactured them, 
And we, they used to den them to um, Led Zeppelins, you know, a um, whole lot of love and things like that, you know. And the, the amazing thing about these, these, splo you must, these splodoscopes, all it was was air being pumped through coloured oil inside right. a, a CD, a round CD-shaped um, disc with two pieces of glass. Mm -hmm. And it had coloured oil inside. And they used to pump oil through it, pump air through it somehow. And it was just an illusion, but it looked like the stuff was going in time with the music. So there'd always be a bit of a thing going in time with the music. And it was just, you know, and there you a couple of joints as well. You'd like, <laughs> that's, why, that's where it all started. <laughs> so, um, so that was the flower power era and, uh, and psychedelia and, uh, you know, and, you know, of course, and that was sweeping through the, the music scene as well. But anyway, I I'm going to reel back a little bit. So, so we're in the shop and that's doing really well. And then I, I have an accident on a horse one Sunday morning in, 19, in January 1968 and I come off this, this bloody great big white hunter who we were airing who, and the, the horse belonged to the boss of ICI. I used to ride out from a, um, a yard, a hunt yard, in uh, just outside Guildford and there were lots of hunt horses there you see and so you know one of the things we would do is exercise them but these things were oated up and they hadn't been out for a while so it was cold January morning you know really freezing and I came off this thing really really badly I got thrown um, and got concussion and snapped my femur my right leg ouch and ended up in the mud you know um, in, in freezing cold mud they couldn't find me you know, so by the time the ambulance got to me on a Sunday morning, this was as well, you know, so anyway, so <laughs> Harry gets a phone call to say I'm in, you know, uh, Royal Surrey County or something like that, you know, on a Sunday morning. They couldn't find a surgeon because he was off playing golf and all this stuff, you know, um, and because um, Harry was well pleased, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, what have you, you know, oh, you and your bloody horses, you know, and... Um, so, uh, so that was the start of another um, traumatic period, you know, where, you know, Dad was a bit, was pretty miffed that I was out of action. You must have been out of action for six months or so. No, you? I was out of action for um, uh, six weeks. And then I, yeah, well, six weeks on traction, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and again, he was, he was lumbered, wasn't he, with him mm -hmm. and Mum having to run the shop. So, you know, I don't think I... Probably appreciate that. Did we have any? Well, we had some staff then as well. So, so I think so. It wasn't too bad. And um, um, yeah, I was hobbling around on crutches, you know. And, and but I, I was a lot of psychological pressure on me to come back and get in the shop, mm. you know. So I was hobbling around on crutches, you know, like in the shop trying to serve and lift gear around and things like that. And then subsequently, uh, I, I, the bone never knitted in the leg, so it snapped again, or the nail, the either this metal pin, mm. pin in my leg called a Kunchner nail, and I snapped that, you know, um, and by... Um, is this We On a mum and I were engaged then, you know, you're uh, an eater. We were engaged... So that was, um, yeah, so that was a really, that was a, you know, difficult period. So, I, so eventually I, I, I wasn't fully weight-bearing for 14 months altogether. Wow. And, and I had, and that was, again, was a real um, decision period in my life because I, I, I couldn't play drums. Mm. So, I, you know, I think... Difficult, I, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, oh, you know, so 
what am I going to do? Because drumming was, you know, I really wanted to, you know. So I thought to myself, again, it's one of these things, isn't it? You go, hmm, I think I'm going to, okay, I'm going to concentrate on the business. I'm going to, we're going to take the business as far as we can. Pack up drumming. And, um, and again, because I didn't, I wasn't that great anyway. So I, I was too, I was hard on myself, you know. I, mm. If I couldn't be absolutely fantastic, I thought it was better not to play at all. <laughs> so, which is a, a, an awful thing, isn't it? Fear of failure. Yeah. <laughs> so abstain from it. If you, probably, yeah, it's probably, a shame. Probably why I bunked off school. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, I, but I, I did play. I did play a little bit. I went back and did a little bit, but again, didn't hook me. But what really hooked me was was business. You know, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the cut. I enjoyed being an entrepreneur. You know, seeing opportunities and seeing how you could improve this or do better there, um, and. Um, and we, we secured some good franchises. You know, I was talking about H&H. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had some uh, some really good uh, product franchises which were taking off like mad. Um, so I'm now, in 19, so I finally got through that period in 1969, got married, we're into the 70s. So the 70s were a period uh, which, was, uh, which was pretty good. Um, we, and then I think around that time we had a lot of problems with a clash I suppose really between the classical mm. customers and the rock guys you know I mean um, who was going with one of our um, uh, lots of bands like Camel came from around mm-hmm. this way didn't they and the, the, um, the Stranglers right come on the Stranglers right so this is Mm-hmm. Before, so they, you know, and they were they were real punky, you know. So, mm-hmm. with that, so there was that type of customer coming in, rubbing shoulders with, you know, Missy, the school teacher who wants, you know, some some violin strings, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. So we said, oh, this is this is not working. You know, we need to. Oh, that's right, because we'd be, you know, there'd be some guy in the corner going, Kring, you know, like winding it up, and there'd be the, the classical customer saying, must I put up with all this noise? You know, can't you turn that down? <laughs> Darn, as they used to say, you know, <laughs> That's exactly how people from Guildford speak, by the way. Just... <laughs> um, so there was a, you know, there was a, a clash, you know, and, um, and, we, uh, and then I thought, oh, you know, we got to, I've got, got, to, got to do something about this. So I'm, and we were then doing uh, this stage, this is going through the 70s, so you can imagine this is a sort of, you know, there's bits of pieces going on all the time. We started to do pianos, upright pianos, mm-hmm. but we had to carry them up the bloody stairs, you know, like, that's why, why I, you know, I've cropped my back and why I'm sort of, <laughs> but we used to carry organs and pianos up the stairs, and I used to be the one on the bottom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bloody things we used to do, it's, you know, like, and we used to dread selling, I used to dread selling the piano. Because you couldn't get it back down. to come back down, yeah. So anyway, eventually, you know, after a year, I persuaded Dad to invest in a, in a hoist, like a forklift truck. So we had a forklift truck outside and punched a hole in the, in the wall and we used to take them in that way. Um, but so that, you know, all that was going on in the 70s. We were doing uh, really well. What other stuff came in? We, we were one of the first, um, what was the very first synthesizers that were made in Putney? Um... I can't remember the name. No, they were, there were some uh, around Ma- the time... Made of, in Putney. Yeah, EM, EMS. Would it be? EMS, something like that. I don't know. There was, around the time of Moog. Yeah. Right, there were Moog in the States, but there was a guy had, uh, down in, in the UK who man, manufactured, was manufacturing a suitcase synth, mm-hmm. little suitcase synth. So, you know, we had the franchise for this stuff and we were selling these things hand over fist, you know. Um, 
so that was you know interesting period. So this is when you know this is the first genre coming into music and mm. you know taking off in all sorts of ways. Um, did I start playing again? I think I might have started doing a little bit of work in a in the odd band, uh, but I can't know. I mm. can't remember. It's all a, it's all a blur. Um, so <laughs> I think the seventies was for a lot of people. Yes, I don't know why, <laughs> but I think it was. Yeah. Um, so and then you came along, nineteen seventy four. Two. Thank you. That's the <laughs> 72, other. Seventy two. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> seventy two. Oh, that's it. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot going on there. So seventy two, seventy four. So the responsibility <laughs> now. <laughs> The responsibility of being a dad, you know, you know about this. Yes. Of being a dad, you know, it's like, oh Christ, you know. So, you know, but so and and one of the things that used to stress me out all the time with with running your own business, and I, can you actually remember, I've never worked for anybody other than mm. sort of part time for Harry Weber, which was an easy job. But having never worked in a corporation or anything else, and trying to when you're self-employed, mm. so you know, we were both self-employed. There's a terrible inner fear all the time that somebody's going to turn the tap off. You know, mm-hmm. That you know, it, it, the business is going to just dry up. It's going to stop. You know, and it's um, it's one of the drivers. I think if you talk to a lot of uh, you know guys that are in that sort of thing, and and you're constantly you know the business is sucking money all the time, so you're constantly putting everything at risk. Um, so you know, like the first house we bought was in nineteen, you know, probably nineteen. 69 when we got married. So the first house was hocked mm-hmm. to the bank, you know, uh, for, to support the overdraft, you know, that good old NatWest. So that was, you know, that, and so that's the start of, of the sense that you're always on the, mm-hmm. you're on the coat hanger for something, mm-hmm. you know, for something or other. Um, so, um, so where do we wind forward to now? What do we go through the 70s? Um, what, what, when did you buy, or did you, how did yeah. you buy Grandad out? Well, well just before that, I, that was mm-hmm. when I got my first... Oh, I know, so we, so we opened this shop in North Street, didn't yes. we? That was the first, that was what I was saying. So we opened this shop in North Street, which, and we moved all the classical stuff up there. Um, uh, but that was expensive, you know. It mm-hmm. was uh, owned by Lloyds Bank. It was brand new. It's where Seven Oaks is now, mm-hmm. I think. Are they still there? It they? is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I took the lease on that. I, and, but I had a terrible time convincing Lloyds Bank that I was good enough to, mm-hmm. you know, for the lease. Because in those days, unless you were a blue chip company mm. and you had fantastic set of accounts, you know, you couldn't get a lease. They didn't want to know about you. You go, well, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Sell electric guitars? And oh God, you know. <laughs> no, that's what it was like. So, and you're dealing with a lawyer, you know, or something mm. you know, the intermediate. So again, you know, my shop like really, you know, just to do me. F- anyway, I don't know how, but I managed to persuade them that we would be good for the rent, uh, and uh, they should take a punt on us, you know, whatever. I still don't know how I managed to convince them, but the, and the bank as well. So that's what we did. So we moved all the classical stuff up into North Street, pianos, and moved Harry up there. Ah. <laughs> so that was, the, that was a way of managing the relationship, was it, was to put you in one building and him in a different yeah, one and give you your of. own mini yeah. empires to Yeah, and we run. were completely then all rock and roll, you know, so mm-hmm. we'd make as much noise as we wanted and, like, Drums and stuff. How did he feel about that then? Because I thought he liked the, the drums. I mean, yeah, he did. Uh, I don't know. I sort of, you know, I don't know. But he sort of went up there. And we had, we had a guy. We had a guy up there who was a manager. So Dad, mm, I think he just liked to go up there. But he wasn't full time up there. Right. Um, and around that time, I began to uh, began to realise we had to get rid of my, well, say, move my auntie out who used to do our accounts. You know, bless her. <laughs> My mum was still working in the business. It was a very much a sort of, you know, very much a 
sort of typical family business. But I, but you you realise I we that was when that was when I really needed. I now I had two shops and I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know I couldn't didn't know how to handle how much could I buy. And then because we were sort of pressured in a way into opening Reading, so it opened up in Reading as well, mainly because of the HH franchise. Mm-hmm. So they were threatening to give us, because we had a big catchment area mm-hmm. in those days, you know, sort of lots of people came to us from all the surrounding counties. And um, we, uh, and I was sort of forced, well, you get pressured into opening in Reading to maintain the agency for mm-hmm. HH amplification, which was, and it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. So uh, we never really did very well out there. We couldn't afford to get into the town, and the only property available game was outside the town, but that was rented. So here I got, I'm now renting Hayden Place and renting Reading and renting North Street, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is starting to Anyway, I was determined I was going to buy, so I kept pestering the dear old lady who lived in Weybridge, lovely lady, to sell me Hayden Place. Um, and I finally persuaded her to sell back in the mid-1970s or something mm-hmm. like that. So that enabled me to get a, a, a freehold building to try and release some personal equity mm-hmm. from the bank, you know. But I think in those days, obviously, needed a mortgage, so that was hocked again. You know, the building was hocked. But I began to get a flavour for, you know, for property and, and mm-hmm. doing that sort of stuff in the background. And, um, and I... Um, and I saw Reading as an opportunity as well because there was a flat over the top of that um, and it was rented out at the moment. But anyway, so coming forward, uh, so late 1970s, I think Dad, had, I'd, I'd had enough really. Uh, it got too too difficult with the family. And I was trying to bring in, um, I was trying to bring in um, an accountant to do management accounting, you know, so a bookkeeper yeah. so that we knew what the hell was happening. You know, I didn't know... And, and I used to, I was interested in, in that time in business. I always used to read lots of business books, you know, mm-hmm. the One Minute Manager. And Michael Gerber was one of my gurus, you know, the guy yes. who wrote the E-Myth. Yes. I, don't know if I, you, think, I think you forced me to read that yeah, once, but, yeah. No, but Michael Gerber, was <laughs> one of his mottos was, you know, learn to work on the business, not in it. Yes. You know, and he always used to cite um, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. You know, yes. Ray never fried a hamburger in his life, you know, never fried any French fries, you know. He, he just worked on the business, not in it. So that was his. Anyway, he was very successful, Michael Gerber, with, and still is, I think, in this E-Myth thing. So I did a few of those courses and I used to, you know, I used to love all this stuff. And um, I finally, and anyway, it came to the watershed was 1981. And unfortunately, Mum and I got divorced then. I think it was in 1981, wasn't it? We sort of, our marriage went down the pan. And at the same time, I said to Harry and Mum, look, you've got to retire. Uh, you know, either I'm going, yeah, either I'm going to go and make my way somehow. I don't know what I would, I don't know what I would do. Um, but um, and but the the other problem was up until that time, everything was in my dad's name. Mm. You know, the whole business was in dad's name, and I realised I didn't, you know, didn't. I think I was made a partner, but only, but not, you know, didn't have any equity in the mm-hmm. business or anything else like that. So, um, so Harry and. So, and I don't know how old he would have been then. He would have been 50, 60, in his early 60s. Um, and we worked, out a, we worked out a deal anyway. So he was very gracious, I think, in saying, yeah, worked out a deal and um, to retire him and mum. Um, and, um, and 
pay him off, you know, like gradually buy mm-hmm. him out, mm-hmm. like a pension. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I just did not know. Oh, this, well, <laughs> you know, another, I don't know whether this is an anecdotal story, but the, you know, the other things that I remember now from, again, from running, running the business was getting called into the bank manager's office. I must have told you this story of my good old NatWest Bank. Um, called me into the office and said, um, oh, Pete, can I come and see you? Yeah, yeah, sure, come in. Graham, somebody I'll leave his name on. Says, I see your house, he said, I see your house is in the paper, you're up for sale, you know, what's happening? Oh, um, well, I've got to, you know, I'm getting divorced. I uh, got divorced and we've got to sell the house. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, so I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, he said, well, you, you realise that the bank's in joint names. Uh, we have a, we, we've got, you know, all your overdraft, which was at that time was a quarter of a million pounds for stock across wow. three shops. It's mm-hmm. a lot of money in those days. And he said, um, uh, yeah, uh, loan, loans and overdraft. He said, um, well, he said, I, I can't, you know, because you're, you know, I can only look at half the equity in the house. So do you think you can arrange to repay, you know, 50% of the overdraft? Thank you, Lord. You know, how am I, you know, do you want to kick me in the other? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that all fell on top of me all at once, you know, like that. Um, and uh, and the emotional problem of getting divorced, you know, going through or realizing my marriage was on the rocks, and that was a lot of that was down to, you know, being stressed out all the time, running the business, and um, I wasn't. I don't think I was a very good, a good husband and a dad. I don't know, but um, but when you're running a business, it is difficult, isn't it? But you you've managed to find that balance, which I, <laughs> which is great. But. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, looking back on all this stuff. So I managed to retire, Harry, in 1981, and I decided it had to be what I called my sackcloth and ashes period, you know? Yeah. So I flogged, I had a JAG. I remember. XJS. Yeah, that so went, didn't that it? That went. And the Sirocco came replaced in, Replaced with a second-hand old banger of a Volkswagen Sirocco, which is a yeah. good little car. Um, sold the house. We had a nice house and we managed to make a lot of money on that because I bought that new in the 1970s when inflation was running at 15% and house prices were going like whoa you know so but we had to get out of there so sold that moved into a flat um, and enough money for mum to buy a place um, and because uh, you guys were at private school and you? you know so you and Guy um, and looking to how to do all this. So anyway, sackcloth and ashes period. So I thought, right, bugger this. Um, I've, got to, I've got to sell. So I closed North Street mm-hmm. branch and handed back the lease. Or did I sell the lease? I can't remember. I think I managed to sell the lease, get out of that mm-hmm. with no um, problems. And around the same time I sold, I managed to sell Reading as a going concern mm-hmm. to a pilot, to a British Airways pilot. Arthur Hamer, his name was. It made sure these things come back. How you doing, Arthur? If you're still around. <laughs> oh, um, that, and that's the music store Hamer's. Then that's what it became, was it? Yeah. Ah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Arthur, who and he just wanted an investment. Yeah. So, I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure that's not still there. Yeah. And but, Pete, uh, Pete, another drummer, a famous drummer. No, he was became a drummer who was managed managed a place for me. But it was very difficult, you know, having having a manager out there running Reading, and I was so relieved. So I got. So I, it was a con- sackcloth and ashes and consolidation period. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get rid of the Reading store, 
um, rent it, rent the property out. So I still, oh, I see. Uh, still kept the lease. But at some point or other, I was able to buy it. It was owned by the co-op. Mm. So again, I was you know a bit more savvy in terms of the property aspect. So I managed to buy the freehold there, put the guy back in as my tenant, got rid of North Street. I don't. I now owned Hayden Place, and property values were going up and up and up, mm-hmm. which is good. So um, and having uh, so I was now able to finance the business from without having to put my personal assets up for mm-hmm. grabs, you know, because I th- from that day onwards. I vowed I would never, ever hock myself into the bank or have myself and my wife, you know, mm-hmm. like any joint uh, family assets, hocked to the bank in case the tap turned off. You know, that mm-hmm. is a place of the tap going like that. And you go, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And you've got staff and all this sort of stuff, you know. So um, it is very stressful, you know, and I didn't realise just how stressful all this was until I sort of fell over in the year 2000, you know, mm. and went into hospital for six months. And I, well, not six months in hospital, but had to, had to take, take a back seat. But that's coming forward. So, um, so but that was a great period. So, uh, a great period in what sense? Well, just, 1980s. Oh, as in just the business was yeah, still 19, doing well. Yeah, one shop. It mm. was just rock and roll. And that, I think, was around the time we opened the disco thing you know, across the road. Right. So it was late 70s, early 80s. And and I and John John was running the pretty much the whole thing, and I got I started designing <laughs> designing office furniture. Yeah. Do you remember that BPS well, Gates uh, company? And that's a, I often wondered. <laughs> people won't know this, but <laughs> y- yes, you you. I often my early memories of of the store, and certainly when I started working there, you were quite distant from the music industry, and you'd started this other business, as yeah. you say, designing office furniture, which was successful as well. But was that did you fall, where did you become disillusioned with music or just, not music itself, but you kind of, I, I often, I vaguely recollect you sort of feeling like it just was too small, you know, it was very cottage industry, well, too yeah, sort was. of. Well, it was, when we used to say the music business in those days was a bit of a joke. We used to, the to, total turnover of the music business in the UK was a third of the Kit Kat business, cat mm. food industry or something. That's right, yeah. It was tiny. No, that, that, that was the stat, wasn't it, that Sainsbury's or the supermarkets yeah. would sell more chicken flavour <laughs> cat food than the whole of the music industry yeah. added up. So, yeah. but, but and was that, a, would that frustrated you because your, your sort of entrepreneurial desire to be a millionaire or whatever it was, <laughs> you just went, I don't think I can do this in the music industry or... I think to some degree, and I'd also mm. seen the other stores going down the multi-store route, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who, who'd fallen on their backs and gone bust. Mm-hmm. There were quite a few. Southeast Entertainments comes to mm-hmm. mind. I don't know where that one, that's way back then, but they were one of the first sort of chains to explode, open up lots of shops, and there were several went to the dogs, mm-hmm. um, you know, went into liquidation and back in that, those t- that time. And having had three shops myself and... The problems of like running, you know, like running a second shot, your problems double. Yeah. And then they sort of quadruple, you know, like, because you always get, you know, you've got a remote shop and the bloke phones in the manager, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come in today because mm-hmm. I'm sick, you know. And and the, my, and I used to, I, I was very, very conscious of the customer, you know, like yeah. providing the best customer service that we could. Because that was a, that was my other thing that I was interested in from a business point of view was sales and marketing, and mm-hmm. but customer experience, you know, same thing. Like, mm-hmm. How do you serve the customer, you know, best? But I think you came up with the 
what, what you know came up with the best mission statement for us, wasn't it? it was ah. um, enabling enabling people to make a good buying decision, you know, so they feel happy with what they've bought, you know, rather than oh, that, feeling. That was, well, I, was, I yes. thought it was great. You, you, well, no, it was good because you you managed to you know like epitomise what the the mission statement was. I never was able to put it in that context so easily. Um, and um, yeah, so that so we'd condensed down in 1981, and uh, again it was great. We had you know, so I was still involved. I had just my office, mm. I had a little office upstairs, uh, and I was and I I was and I was riding again, so because you know, I got back on a horse and I bought my own horse, you know, so. I had my own horse and I was going riding and I had this, so I started this. I think what it was, I, I personally, I, I'm sorry I'm talking about myself all the time, but it's very narcissistic, isn't it? Egocentric, this. <laughs> I apologise, but I don't think, you know, I apologise for this, but I, it's just always trying to find out who I am, you know, what's dri- what drives me. But I, I was frustrated, I think, because, you know, I missed that opportunity of never going to the College of Art and Design. Mm-hmm. And being, being, I had a, you know, a real desire to sort of, I don't know, make, make or design things. And this opportunity to, to, I could have done it in the music business, I suppose, but the opportunity never arose, you know. But this opportunity arose in, in this um, computer furniture. So we'd just gone... We bought our first computer back then, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was such a novelty for a biz- for a music shop to have a computer, you know. It used to take us all weekend to program the stock turnover, you know. It was, it was absolutely dire, you know, dial-up modem. Um, but it set me off on that road, you know, of devising, developing systems, stock control systems. How, how are we going to, how can we, you know, know what's going on in the business? And one of the mandates or the things that used to, um, that echoed with me was if you're going to make a decision in a business, you know, 99% of the time it will be a financial, have a financial bearing. Mm-hmm. Can I afford to buy this? Can <clears throat> I afford to employ this person? You know, can we build this? Can I do this? It always had a financial, uh, you know, you needed some financial data. And if that financial data was flawed, mm-hmm. you know, your decision was was flawed. Yeah. So, um, so you know, I was very keen on making sure that we got the, had the best data. What's happening today in the business? Mm. Not, you know, two years down the line like it was in those days when you had your annual accounts. You know, yeah. done. You de- I definitely remember that mm. being the bit that took me the longest to get my head round. Not get my head round, but it's the because it's you know, if you're into music and you yeah. love playing the guitar and you love dealing with yeah. customers and it's all exciting, the, the idea of producing management accounts is so utterly dull. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you do realise, you, you're absolutely right, once you, you just... It, there's, too much, there's too much money and too many transactions going on all the time mm. to try and make every decision based on a gut feeling that it's mm. the right one, you know. And, and if, as you, you're absolutely right. If the data's... I suppose that the only thing worse than having no data is wrong data. Because yeah. then, then it's even worse, you know. You're, but Well, you, I, and again, I think I was, you know, I, was, I used to do the old type management mm-hmm. course and all this stuff, and I used to read that they said, you know, you've got, to, you've got to get behind the business, like on the, you know, if you imagine it's like a horse and mm-hmm. cart, it's no good you running along in front of the horses, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> leading the horses. You've got to get in the driving seat and, and drive the horse. So, you've, you know... So it's about delegation, which you know, yep. I was, I was crap delegator, well, we, you know. But I mean, we should. So, so, so if we the the office furniture business is is almost like it's another 
chapter and for people watching yeah. this probably a, a less interesting but well but... it was interesting because it gave me another stream of income yeah okay so i had i now had this and it and it uh gave me an outlet for my design and yeah. um you know for my expression design i mean you, you know i won i won back then i won um, a couple of awards for design i became a member of the design council oh cool and i won a silver award for the pack the cardboard box that we one of the cardboard boxes we put in. well it's cardboard engineering you know a, sil- a silver award so i was quite pleased you know and we did and uh well russell morgan joined us then i remember another drummer friend yes um but it got then we, you know, that business sort of started to go berserk, you know, like we, we, we got into bed with a, some partners in Germany and had manufacturing plant in Hanover and all that stuff, you know. So, you know, my focus was very much in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, I got fed up, you know, we couldn't, I could, again, I could not make decisions. I, you know, I, I could make decisions about the music business, and, and, uh, but it wasn't going anywhere, you know, it was just, it was trucking along, it was doing okay. And we didn't really want to go down the multi-store route, um, but we, we were sort of stuck on how to mm. upscale it, how to scale it up, because you know, we were at capacity where we were, square footage. So, and that was around the time, again, 1981 now, I divorced, sacrificial <laughs> period, um, so through their BPS gates. And then we get into the nine late 1980s, uh, and you are just coming out of, where are we now, about 1989, 1990. Yeah. Um, so, um, but I, you know, I still like being at the sharp end of the business, mm. you know, but I found I couldn't, I couldn't run it from the front, you know, yeah. I couldn't be in the front doing customers and all that, and also, you know, trying to run the business with yeah. that. So I had to take a step back and, and, and physically, you know, move back from the business, which was difficult, you know, mm. it's hard. Um, so... Uh, but then uh, I really I got I got rid of the BPS Gates business, the, the computer furniture business, because I had a, had a gut full of trying to deal with the German guys, um, and um, and you had been working in the store for a few years with the broom, you know, Saturday boy, but was a good salesman, you know, <laughs> he really had a you had a good feel for it, and we're very, uh, you know. But I didn't want to pressurise you. This is this is this is interesting. I don't know if it's interesting for other people, but it might be for members of the family. But I I never wanted you because of the relationship I'd had with my yeah. dad. I did not want a repeat of that. Yeah. And I absolutely wanted you to come into the business of your own volition if you wanted to. But ideally, to bring another skill to it, so you had your own skill set there. Mm. You know, like I definitely remember you not wanting me to join the business. You know, and again, I think it was. Probably still, that was perhaps what added to the sort of sen- my sense that you were disillusioned with it all because I, I just think you've, you, just ne- you, you just didn't see it as something that I'd be able to make the kind of career in as if I'd gone and done something else. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I, I don't know, I, I had the bug for it bad, yeah. you know, really bad, and it was all I wanted to do. Uh, and I and I think, from a timing point of view as well, I was very lucky that y- you had the opportunity to move the business again into an even bigger premises, which gave me the sort of platform. Yeah, well, that's a bit that, later on to well, in, in the you know in the history, well, mm. like the dynamics of the business, mm. there was that, that again this that momentous day when your your teacher phoned me up from 
Guildford College. Remember that? I do. <laughs> and he said, because um, I'd persuaded you to go back to uni. Yeah, I, well, I, I persuaded college. you to go back to college. Yeah. Mm. So I persuaded you to go back to uni, to college, to get, you, you only needed about three or four more points in order to go to university. And I was trying to encourage mm. you to go to university and get, um, a degree in business management or some, you know, some skill that you could bring into the business, accountancy or something like that. And Can that, you imagine <laughs> me as an accountant? I know. But I didn't want you to, like, I wanted you to, mm. I wanted you to have some experience of the outside world before coming into the family business because family businesses can be awfully claustrophobic, you know, and, and um, oh, you know, like, sm- they can, yeah. be, really, well, this, they can sure. be really difficult. As you know, you know, with... Like when we, when yeah, the, the different problems you have. So, um, yeah, so that fateful day, you, um, the, the, the bloke from the college phoned up and said, um, Mr. Andrew, do you know where Lee is? No, he's in, he's doing it, sitting exam and he's with you in the college. He said, No, he isn't here. <laughs> and hadn't been there for months, which is ironic, <laughs> really, isn't it? Yes. Um, but there we are. Uh, I got uh, the mother of all bollockings. No, uh, you didn't. Now, come on, I thought I was really. Okay, maybe over the phone, but I thought I was really, I think I thought I was a really cool dad, actually. No. Because I said, come on, let's go and have a beer and talk about this. That is not how it happened at all. Oh. I came into the shop and John, <laughs> John Hulk looked at me and he went, what have you done? And I'm like, what? And he's like, you need to go upstairs and see your dad. How old are you? 17? 18, 18, something like that. So I, I realise now that that's it. I've been found out in the last six months of not going to college, even though I told you I was. So set over. And honestly, the smoke was coming out of your ears oh, when God. I walked into that office. You oh. made me write you a written apology. Did I? Yeah. God. You made me write you a written apology. No wonder they say I was hard but fair. Well, <laughs> and that was, the, that was the fateful day where you did. You just went, you know, that here's, here's a broom. Because that was, up until that point, I'd just been... Um, part-time you know that was yeah, and okay. you literally just got and it was just well, my, here's the okay, my memory is different then okay maybe maybe my my heart memory is different then but i remember sort of sitting down with you and at some point or other okay once about a level of steam and saying well t- what do you i i know i did this and said what do you want what do you want to do what do you mm. what do you want to make of your life you know what where do you want to go because at that time you were just fiddling around with guitar weren't you you'd, you'd I've never been a no, but you were in a school band and you were pretty good. You know, we used to yeah, we used to come and see you up at um, where was it the with mean the, fiddler, the mean fiddler, yes. yeah. And that I mean, it was a great, it was good, it was, it was a good little band. But good I was never, band. I never ever did it you ever cross my mind you that I might do that no, professionally. <laughs> Definitely not. No. So, um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I listened, and it was then when you said, "Oh, I just want to come in the business," and, I, yeah. and it was like a like a bing moment you know oh christ i didn't hadn't seen this i really just did not realize that mm. your passion was you know was to be part of the business or come in the business so i went oh bloody hell right okay that's it then so the first thing we need is here here's if, if guy if lee wants to really get behind this i've got to give him a vehicle to show what he can do um so, uh, so I uh, at that time the property market, the end of the nineteen eighties, this was was, mm. was was there was a there was a big crash, a big recession. Mm. Okay, nineteen eighty eight, I think it was. It was a massive recession, a crash, and um, 
the the opportunity. I saw this building. Uh, the, the room is here. Isn't it? Where, where we are? Well, the pretty thing. much. Yeah, the but current yeah, store. Current store. Current store. Eighty uh, came on the was on the market. Um, uh, the uh, refrigeration uh, wholesaler had owned it. And again, it was derelict. It was mm. absolutely, there was ivy and brambles growing up through the floor and everything else. So we saw this, didn't we? Um, and we went and had a look at this. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is it. This is the opportunity of moving into Sweden. We've got really big premises. Mm. It's going to need, uh, you know, it's going to need some, some doing up. But it was, a, again, big gamble. So I gambled all, every, all my pennies. I'm, I hocked, uh, I hocked everything I had, um, uh, except the flat. I still kept, I think I just, I wouldn't allow yeah. myself to do the flat. But all the business premises I had, um, by that time I'd managed to buy uh, Reading. Right. I had the Reading, and I'd also managed to buy the flat over the top of it. And uh, from, or it was a rented accommodation, and it tra- overnight it transformed from being worthless to quite a few thousand pounds because mm-hmm. I would sell it off freehold. So there were all these little aspects mm-hmm. going on. So it was like you know things were, things were, the god was shining on, if you like, you know the the powers that be yeah. were were favouring me a bit more. I'd been through the mill, mm. and I was still going through the mill a bit, in that, you know, emotionally, but. That uh, was a, and I saw that as a, that's the, this is, we're going to do this. Yeah. So there's a photograph of you and there me is. outside. On the day you got the keys, I on think. On the day I got it? the keys and we're looking at this, this, this bloody derelict place and thinking, um, you know, bravely, how much can we, how much have we got to tosh this up then, you know? So, um, so we were still trading around in Hayden yeah. Place. I mean, so I kept that premises. I think I, well, I can't think what else had happened. Whether I'd bought somewhere else or no, we we. I mean, that's I. I remember I got that rid time, of the disco shop. The, yeah, you know, like so we, we we were we were working in the smaller music store. Yeah. Just you know, whilst right. you basically put a hundred percent into doing up. That's right. The yeah. the new premises, and yeah. I think even that. Uh, was beset with problems oh. and ended up being six to twelve months longer to open yeah. and than, twice as expensive. And, yeah, and it, so even that got a bit yeah. touch and go, didn't it? Yeah, it crucified me financially. But um, yeah, I was there in there every day trying to solve problems. Mm. You know, of um, the foundations. We every time we took some, you know something a floor away, we found rot and this problem and that problem is sucking cash like mad. Mm. But we had a good, desi- a good designer on board. Um, we had some great guys doing it. Um, and um, uh, in the end, I, I had to employ a project manager and stuff like that. But it just sucked every mm. penny dry. But I, and- I, I remember, I really, really remember that the move from an old store where I think potentially people could still smoke in the store. If they couldn't, it hadn't finished that long ago. But there was still very much that idea that the staff would just eat their lunch on the counter. You know, it was yeah. very old school. And we moved to the, the new store. New regime. And it was literally, it was like, no, it's like, if yeah. you want to have a, if, if you, your lunch, you go into the That's room it. at the back. Yeah. There's no smoking. Yeah. There's no sense. Yeah. Every staff member then had to wear a Uniform. T-shirt, a T-shirt yeah. you know, branded T-shirt. Oh, that's right. We actually created a staff. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was able to give the staff somewhere to have their tea yeah. and coffee. And, you know, and, and I remember, staff I absolutely remember a little bit of a backlash from the sort of hardcore old customers going, I don't think I like this new. Yeah. But the 
I think you, even at that young age, certainly you and I shared a similar vision that, that, that there was absolutely, there was another customer uh, that was used to going into quite a high-class retailer to buy anything else they wanted to buy. If they wanted to buy some clothes or they wanted to buy some hi-fi or they wanted to buy a new TV, you know, they, they weren't going to like an old style. Yeah. And I, I just remember that, uh, a sort of a sense that perhaps some of the hardcore old customers from from the the, the old store were a bit negative about the new store. Yeah. But right. fortunately, a much larger number of customers went. This is exactly how I want to shop for my musical equipment stuff. And that first, you know, even the first year, but certainly the first two or three years of being here, the growth was, and this is pre-internet, pre-mail order, pre yeah. this was just yeah. in the store sales, went like that. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, that was around that was the time when Stuart uh, had yeah. started with us as well. And yeah. that was... That's right, April the 1st. You, you just reminded me, April the 1st, 1991. Yeah. But remember, I only had, I had one assistant, back office assistant. Yeah. I can't remember who that was back then. Jean. No, I think there was somebody before her, I think. Pam? Yeah, Pam Connor or something like that. Anyway. But anyway, I was... So I was just... There was only me and one other person doing all the back office stuff, yeah. accounting stuff, and 1991. And the economy went into double-dip recession. Right. Right? So, you know, I think it, went, it had a... We remember it being a double-dip recession. So I couldn't get... And I was, I was stretched financially, like, you know, out mm. I couldn't get more finance the banks were like not interested not interested um and um and i chucked everything into it but i'd bought the freehold mm. i'd managed to get the freehold on that property which was you know um always buy the freehold if you can um so uh and you after two well, eight, within two years you mm. and stuart stuart mm. west i know i've got got it wrong about 1970 but stuart you and stuart were doing at least 50% of the turnover between the two of you, you know, mm. and John Hawksworth was there, wasn't he, mm. as well? So, um, you know, and so between the three of you, probably, you know... Well, it just, it things a, went worse. Stuart, it was, it was just at the, at John the beginning... John was a great salesman. John had his following. Well, it, was, his, so. it was just at the beginning of the digital boom. Yeah. So you That's, had... Yeah. So, so Stuart ran the side of the business that all the sort of the digital studio recording equipment kind of came into. And, and again... Who's, that, the, who's the other guy? Andy Mack. Do you remember him? Yeah, Andy, and another guy who ran our um, MEC division for a while. Oh, Kevin Pawsey? Kevin Pawsey, yeah. yeah. So they were some... Some really good guys, Some yeah. amazing um, guys that we found and they just joined us for a oh, while. Look, do you know what? We'll... we'll Anyway, we'll never ever mention all the amazing people no, that have worked. Exactly, there, but as you say, yes. Stuart and is Saturday. You know, um, part-time staff. We used yeah. to get some great part-time staff, and I'd love to know where they are today. You know, like there was one guy I remember, Barry Sear. So if Barry's looking, you know, send us an email, tell us what you're doing, because he, he became a barrister. I think. Did he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, he joined the Royal Navy and it was embarrassing. Anyway, but, but so, it, things, despite this double-dip recession, <sighs> yeah, sales were sales great. Sales really us. went. We were doubling the turnover yeah. each. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, and I, again, I was running it on a shoestring, back office mm. shoestring, you know. And so that was ragging us out. And then, um, you know, we were gradually. I was always reluctant to add more staff. You see, that was the trouble because you know. I, was, I literally remember then. I mean, and it's bizarre now that the amount of money nowadays that Andertons and, and I am able to authorize to just throw <laughs> willy nilly at ideas to just you know particularly. 
on the digital side of things, you know, yeah. you little little bits of software do funny yeah. something. Anyway, you throw 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 at something just to sort of, you know, I wonder if that'll work like that. And I just remember, again, back in those days, you couldn't even get, like, five pounds without having to go through the the, the ringer with you about, you know, the justification. But I guess because that's how strapped it was. It was just well, stretched. Just, it, just a, what, you yeah, know, to, and, and all just, the fittings, as you say, carried on being homemade. And, well, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, we did, we had some nice shop fit, though, back then. Yeah, that, that but was, you still did it all yourself, didn't you? Well, pretty there much. There wasn't really any... Off the shelf stuff, was there? Mm, no, that's true. No, no, I, that's right. I, I you designed, designed all the guitar hangers. I designed didn't you? all the guitar racks. That's mm. it. Yeah, and, and made those and things like that. But um, yeah, so that was a, that was the fun part mm. for me. I used to like that bit as well. Um, uh, but but anyway. so so relatively quickly, it became apparent that it was it had been the right move. And I said it wasn't just the scaling up of the size; it was very much the presentation became much more in keeping with. Yeah. How you would well, uh, I think, expect other retailers I think to be. Both of us realised that you know during those days the clothing shops and everything yeah. else there was a different ethos about you know the old beer beer and fags type mm. rock and roll music shop was you know was really you know outdated. Mm-hmm. It was an outdated retail Very intimidating. Yeah, it was intimidating for some people, but then the, the, mm. you know, like the guys that didn't spend a lot of money liked it, you know, because they could come in and practice for two or three hours, you know, their <laughs> latest lick, and then go, "Thanks, Harry," you know, "Thanks, Pete," and, and bugger off, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the, so I wanted this clean. I wanted clean mm. stock as well, you know, like all. You know, I like just I, even I'm, I'm laughing really because I remember <laughs> the musicians notice board. Yeah. Every music store used to have a musician's <laughs> notice board, and it would just be this bit of cork board somewhere in the store, covered in old bits of paint, drummer wanted, you know, guitar player wanted, like that. And you, you <laughs> insisted that we have our own Anderton's postcards, and you were only allowed to stick a note on the notice board if you wrote it within an Anderton's postcard, and it had to be very much so. so it looked super, super neat and custom. On it, it was, it was such a pain in the ass to that manage. My, that was my OCD. It was. Yeah. We, had, we had like literally every day, or like every few days, Stuart or I would be just like, "Somebody tidy up the notice board, please," because if Dad sees that, he's just he's nut because there's like wonky postcards, or someone's managed to stick. The day that we went digital, and I could finally. Go we don't need a musician's notice board anymore because now the internet exists and people can just find other it was like yay yeah. <laughs> we just get rid of this thing been the bane of my life for 10 years do you remember the notice that Harry put up there once so you know it's just always Russell Morgan used to put some good ones up there uh, as a my, up. my dad put one up once didn't he which was um, uh, drummer wanted you know big letters drummer yeah. wanted uh, no kit no experience no transport but dead keen. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all these spoof things, you know, were, yeah. were on the thing. So. Uh, but so let's let's go to hmm. a, another momentous decision that you made uh, in 1995. Yes. When uh, well, you... Was, okay, the, first, the first five years mm. were phenomenal, you know, mm. um, in terms of getting, you know, the the, the growth and, and the cash flow and everything mm-hmm. else. And we were able to get on our feet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and then we and then we did start employing more people, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, so we were probably, we must have had, mm. we were certainly into double figures by then, weren't we, yeah. in terms of staff, you yeah. know, and we had a drum manager and a yeah. Stuart as the high-tech manager and me yeah. as the guitar manager. Yeah. And so there must have been, what? Ten yeah, staff, yeah. probably and, and ten. What about what about what did you notice about the trends in the music business? Because yeah, during that time, it was still very much 
people, you know, when I ever used to go to try and get finance for the mm. business, people just, you know, well, you know this, the music business it, it was when never had, a, still didn't have a serious that That was the profile, turn. Not, 1990 it? for me was the turning point where, mm. where the, the music retail became something that professional and semi-professional musicians needed a place to go and buy their stuff from yeah. to it began to become a lifestyle hobby choice yeah. so people would just go i fancy playing the guitar at the weekend yeah. or i fancy playing the drums you know yeah. and i think also we that baby boomer generation so mm. all those guys of your age who'd had a bit of a dabble in a beatles yeah. beatnik kind of band in the 60s were all coming out of the other side of having kids and the, you know a bit more disposable yeah. income and they were all going what do I fancy doing now with my spare time and cash? Grow my hair? Oh, I can't anymore because no, I'm bored. And they'd be just like, I'm going to go and buy that guitar that I couldn't afford when I was 16. So, and that was a different customer. You know, that yes. was a customer that wanted a high service level experience. Well, we had lots know. of professionals, accountants, exactly. bank managers and company directors. So it was, and, you know. the timing... The timing was very fortuitous in terms of, you know... Um, and many more ladies, many more girls coming. Yeah, still, I mean, that's still a massive disparity nowadays, yeah, but, you know. but more, more, you know, like noticeably more more girls coming. I, I, think, we, I think we very much understood that the old music store and many other of our competitors' music stores were unbelievably intimidating places to go for anyone that didn't really know what they were going in for. Mm. And... If you're, uh, if you were a woman at the time wanting to show, even more so again, you know, just another level of intimidation. And I think we worked really, really hard to make sure that that we tried to 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 remove that sense of intimidation wherever we possibly could. It was always really, really difficult to to get it perfectly right because the business was then and even still now is largely male dominated in terms of its workforce. Yeah. But I, but I. Well, I think we made massive strides mm. into just making it a more but there, a, inviting did, place, relaxed yeah, place to yeah. be. No, we did have where well, there was one. There was one period where I really started to worry. You know, like I can't remember when it, when it was, but we really we were really running into financial difficulties um, because we'd I'd, we'd st- I'd taken a foot off the brakes, as it were. And we were running into financial difficulties, and we had to make one or two people redundant as well. You know, like through that period. That was late nineties again. I think yeah, we wound that on late nineties, but that another was, recession time. I think. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. It was another Perhaps recession. grown a bit too fast. Yeah, and uh, I can't remember whether we and and in nineteen ninety five. Oh, yes, mm. it must have been after nineteen ninety five. Probably when my focus again was more on the ACM thing. Well, it, I mean, this is. So I think this is because I I do remember again. Uh, Early, even back then, Andertons would still sell hundreds of, of uh, beginner guitar and drum sets and things at Christmas time. I mean, that, in fact, if anything, back then the Christmas peak felt oh. more important than it, than it is nowadays. Yeah. But huge numbers. And by the following March, you know, you just knew that 90% of those people had packed it in. You know, they just, yeah. um, and I think even then, you and I, we're talking about the, uh, the the problem that young kids, you know, kids in their teen teenage, would, would get a guitar for Christmas. They'd be listening to Oasis or whatever the you know Nirvana or whatever the cool thing was at the time, and then they'd go, "Can you get me some lessons, please, Mum and Dad?" Mm-hmm. And some sixty-year-old guy would, you know, with a sort of like a 
Bobby Charlton comb over hairdo would get <laughs> green sleeves out of his, you know, classical book and that's what they would teach them and you'd just go, is it really any wonder then that, you know, 95% of kids just go, oh, I don't really fancy doing this, you know. And uh, But I, I remember both of us have, I think even the, I'm pretty sure I remember almost the exact words were, if we could change the introduce some new way a more engaging way of learning even if it just broke even but it kept a few you know it reduced that attrition rate of people giving up it would be worth doing when did you start the weekend warriors program was that around that that was that was later later. but i span off from the ac you you then um well, I, I, sort of took that on as a sort of a... Well, I, again, I, there was a cata- cataclysmic moment. I was at a music conference down in Bournemouth, mm. like an annual music conference, and I was chatting away with somebody who was a flute teacher. You know, right. So it was all classical. And she said, well, what do you do? Yeah. I said, I've got a rock and roll music shop. Yeah, rock and roll, that's not proper music, is it? You know, that is, I remember her words this day. Mm. Oh, that's not proper music, is it? And I, you know... And I came back from there, and the guy, one of the guys who was um, one of the lecturers there, and I, can't, I won't remember his name, but he was the director of music at Wells Cathedral School. Right. Um, but he was very progressive. He, mm-hmm. he saw the benefit of, of modern music and how the, um, you know, the UK PLC, the amount of money that was generated mm. for the UK economy in the rock and roll business and copyright and music and everything else, you know. Yet, back then, there was no government funding for uh, for it. It all went to the classical conservatoires, yeah. Yeah, like the yeah. London School of Music and so on. So we were, we were, it was music in education. There was no money for kids, you know, there was no money in, in schools and that's for kids to get an education. And it also, the only qualification that they could get back in those days was the associated... A- ABRS, Associated, ABS, Associated, Associated Board. Board of the Royal, of the Royal Schools of Music or something. Yes, uh, right. ABRSM, something yeah. like that. So up to grade eight. Yeah. And the syllabus was green sleeves, you know, on classical guitar. And all. So there wasn't, there wasn't a yeah. qualification, there wasn't, any, there wasn't anything at all, apart from, I think, where the Brit School had started. Well, Rock, Rock School or had school. just started, I think, and that yeah. was a... I can't remember what the yeah. nationality of the guy is that started that, but yeah. there, there was a sense mm. that... That you began to see this mm. this graded system that fitted in with with sort of our education requirements, yeah. if you like, a, yeah. a sense of grading, well, we but did, more contemporary. Yeah, we we I was I was really keen. I thought, wow, mm. this is great. But I mean, again, another cataclysmic moment is um, was I met Phil Brooks, who was a local guitar teacher, and we we hit it off, you know, and, and we had the same sort of vision, you mm. know. But he was really uh he had this vision for the, a way to teach kids um anybody who wanted to learn rather than a one-to-one you know mm. like uh, i think up until that time yeah most of the music education was one-to-one you went to your drum teacher mm-hmm. you went to your guitar teacher and it wasn't economic wasn't efficient and um so he he uh, we we tried going out we had a little program didn't we where we were trying to go out into schools mm-hmm. with a little rock workshop and everything else and that didn't work and it was Phil, really, said, you know, we've got to have, we, we need some premises, you know. And I said, well, I've got some premises, you know. We've got Hayden Place, which is still empty. Yeah, the old store. The old store. So we, it's been on the market for five years because the property had, you know, bottomed out yeah. completely. Um, so 
you know, I so said, I'm putting two to two and together. I think, well, OK, hang on, you know, what's that costing me a year? Da, 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 da. Could we get going there? So that's how the Academy of Contemporary Music started, really. So Phil and I went into partnership and bless him, he came up with, a, you know, the same amount of money as me. And we put this into a pot and we started off, you know, where it was enough to kickstart the ACM. Mm. And but all, but all my focus then, of course, was 100% on the Academy of Contemporary Music, you know, um, and uh, and that that just went like a rocket, you know. And I'm, as I say, because I, I in my head I remember that this original line of going, uh, you know, even if it just breaks even but sells a few <laughs> guitars, it's worth doing. To fast forward, not that much, but like six, five or six years, maybe four. later, for us, and it was like. Hang on a second. It's make it's making more money than Anderton's, yeah. and you just go, who who saw that coming? And right. and of course, ACM has been replicated um, around the world yeah. many times because people have realised now that you know that type of music tuition is has massive demand and can be uh, very... Well, it was exciting, you, you know, know. It was really commercially exciting. viable. Yeah. And the, I mean, the premises when we got, I got. Um, I got offered the opportunity. Well, so, we, so we had the school going, uh, the old premises. I then, then we were. I mean, again, this is why it was so stressful for me. Phil would go. We had to. We had to say to the education authorities. We had to commit to so many pupils, nearly eighteen months to two years ahead, right? So that you um, uh, for funding. Yeah. Because they all got funding. Because we were working under Guildford College at those times. We were called what's known as an outside collaborative provider. And Phil will come along and say, Pete, you know, um, said I've, um, I've committed us to um, another 180 pupils for year after next, you know. Don't know where we're going to put them. Thanks. <laughs> but that, to put things so, in perspective, though, you are talking about year one, 30 full-time students, wasn't it? So yeah. just doing guitar. That basically Phil taught, didn't he? Yeah. Phil to and then uh, Bruce, Bruce Dickinson. Bruce Dickinson joined yeah. us. Or... To within... What six or seven years? Over a thousand full-time yeah. students. A thousand full-time students going through, and think about the the scale yeah. of a of an operation that has to teach yeah. that I, many people, employ that many staff, and all of the legislation around you yeah. know running a college. Yeah, it was ex- it was exciting. I loved it, you know, because it was for me. It was the way of like, there's a, here's a challenge, you know, got to mm. find some more property, got to negotiate this, you know, and it was always you know like get in there and you know, wow, yeah. Um, so I was I was lucky. I was, you know, Phil Phil ran all the front end, um, and um, you know, and I was I was running the back office stuff. Again, really hands on with a good accountant and stuff like that. And we that that was that went uh, that was went enormously successful within four years. And I think and then we were also getting all the courses. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it called? Um, like qualified. They were all. Certified as you know, with exams and everything else. Um, so, um, so you we could say to people, yes, you know, to, to mums and dads, you know, if you're if you're Johnny, you know, studies with us, it's they can come out with a piece of paper, you know, that's really is a recognised a recognised degree. Well, we actually did go up to mm-hmm. university degree. We didn't we fast track two year degree, but we were running a drum school, guitar school, bass school. Production. M- music production. And then that's when it, we got the spin-off with music education consultants going into schools. That's you know. true. So we, we set up a division going into schools and colleges to help them uh, teach 
music ed in education, so trying to do that. But that, again, that was hard work, and so I invested a lot of energy into that for a while. But that never really, never uh, really changed, took off because yeah. you know, the only good thing we did was Eton College. That was a great contract. We actually oh, for a few years yeah. we put, but I think we put the all. It the was interesting. There was a relatively short window where the established old guard of music teacher didn't know what to do to deliver to contemporary deliver music tuition. And so we created a division that would go in and consult and help them. But what we didn't realise that was within four or five years, new teachers were coming in who did know what yeah. to do. They just didn't need us anymore. Sure. And so I think we sort of, yeah. it relatively quickly became just redundant, that consultancy yeah. business, yeah. but it was good while yeah. it lasted. Yeah. And, I, and I think from my point of view, one of the things that helped manage our relationship uh, and gave me perhaps the freedom that I... Because uh, you and I, are, we both have a very different approach, or certainly probably maybe it's more similar now, but back then it was a really different f approach to how we wanted to do things, a shared vision of what we wanted to achieve, but a really different approach to doing it. And I think the fact that you were able or the fact that you were sort of drawn away from the the music retail yeah. side of it to go and focus on ACM and that that was commercially successful as well just meant that I didn't have the sense of you looking over my shoulder all the time going, I wouldn't do it like that and I wouldn't do it like that and I wouldn't do it like that. Not because it was wrong, just because... And, and I don't know how I would have reacted. I think, you know, I probably would have reacted much like you did with your dad going, you know, don't do it like that and don't do that, don't... you kick back, wouldn't you? So yeah. I think it was a it was a... Quite a happy time. Well, I mean, we used to talk about, you know, uh, this might sound a bit patronising, but I was grooming you to take over. Mm. You know, I wanted, I wanted you to have the business skills as well, which is like around the time when you went to Cranfield. Yeah. Went off to Cranfield um, School of uh, Management or something like that, you know, just to sort of like sharpen, you know, yeah. make you... So that if the opportunity came to scale the business up, mm. you know, you... You didn't, weren't frightened about it. You, you know, you could do it. And I was probably a bit too, still a bit too cautious back then, having been through, you know, mm -hmm. my history of, of ups and downs and um, that sort of thing. But so, uh, so anyway, so, so here we go. So you're you're running the, the music business. It's a great, you know, it's really going well. Um, and I was able to sort of hands off that, concentrating on the ACM, and then an ACM took off as well. Um, and then we get to uh, the year 2000 when I, I had a serious medical, uh, f fell over medically um, and had to take, um, well, I had to you know, just go into hospital and have a, an operation. And then I had to, I wrote you and Phil a letter, didn't I? <laughs> Saying, here you go, guys. Now you've got to step up to the plate because yeah. I am, you know, I'm out of the picture. Yeah. So, and that was, that was life changing for me and you and probably Phil as well, because, you know, Phil had to, to run the whole of the thing, but I, again, we lucky enough we put some good mm. back infrastructure. We had some good infrastructure in place, so mm. I still could see the management accounts coming in, and I sort of, you know, so I had a little handle on it, but I wasn't involved in the day-to-day -day business. And uh, you, you ran the thing. So, so from that point onwards, I, I was able to step back from the business, wasn't I? Sort mm. of, and let you guys get on with it uh, for a, for a number of years. Um, then Phil and I, sort of, after, as we got into the. Uh, you know, a bit, a bit later, Phil and I began to have differences of opinion the way we wanted the business to go, you know, and um, uh, I'd always come from a, you know, a business background, I suppose, where profit for me was the fuel for any, an, any enterprise. 
you know, you can't run an enterprise unless it's making a profit because it's mm. only the profit that, that is the fuel for it. Um, and um, and but the but academics have a different approach, you know, um, academically because there's normally mm. unlimited. Funding, uh, you I know. Think, so I anyway. think there's a big age gap between you and Phil, and yeah. I, I know when Phil talked to yeah. me, I think he mm. felt like there was part of it he wanted. To, he he felt like perhaps the first five or ten years of ACN, he'd very much deferred to all your decisions yeah. just because of your seniority and age. Yeah. I think he just wanted, yeah, he wanted bit, to do his own thing. There's a bit he? of an Oedipus, um, comp, you know, Oedipus syndrome. Well, crikey, I don't know about that. Well, but, you know, uh, like, well, no, you've got to kill your yes. father in order to. Say yes, yes, yes. But he, um, but so we. We but, went, so we, yeah, that, our amazing, and I and I said, well, okay, buy, buy me, me out. out. Yeah. So I was I was happy at that stage to uh, to to relinquish. I was chairman mm. of ACN, but I didn't have much to do with the day to day running of it, and I wanted, you know. So anyway, so I sold out, um, and um, and came away with a little bit of a uh, bit of pot, and I was able to then reinvest that back into mm -hmm. the, the store. Um, which meant we were completely free of um, any financing by banks yeah. and um, all that sort of stuff, which gave, you know, allowed you to really, you know, gave you a free hand to to do pretty much what you wanted. And there we go. That's that was the, that's the start of. I mean, you know, and it's just been amazing. You know what you've and you came in at the right time. I wasn't. I wasn't part of that computer. Um, What's she, what's she say? The internet. Okay, I, I, it, it was sort mm. of like it was a bit too late for me. I was a bit too old, um, and so on and so forth. But um, so to see the opportunities there, you know. Yeah, but that, and that's the bit I think I'll forever be mm. grateful for. Um, and uh, you know, despite all the the success we've had um, over the last fifteen years or so. Um, I, ne I never and have never really had to experience that sort of gut-wrenching feeling of, you know, I've never had to put my own house up for no, as or, equity or in is, the business. Is, is, is the money going to stop tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> I think to a certain extent, you know, that that's in, in, in retail, you never really know what the following day is going to be. So there is always a sense, there's, I don't, I, I think I've got, that's a part of the drive, I think. And I, you know, sometimes now I even call it, you know, feeding the beast, you know, you're also going, you know, it doesn't matter what you did today, you've got to do it again tomorrow. And, and, you know, and, and I, I do understand very, very quickly, you know, a, a three or four month exceptional trading period, you very, very quickly realise that you've geared up the operation to just, that just becomes the normal now. Like, oh, that, we just got to do that the next three months. And then, of course, a bit more. So I, but, but I just, and I can only say thank you, you know, for going through that, that the, the difficult yeah, but I, first but, bit. But yeah, but you know. you, I know this is a bit like, what do they call this? Mutual admiration society. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but you... My my old ethos, if you like, you know, for how to treat a customer and mm. how to present, you know, a store and being in retail and all sorts of you managed to you picked up on that, which is which is great, and, and gave me the confidence mm. to let you to let you go, and so I was able to step back from the mm. business. I was able to really step back and let you know let you have your own head and um, take it where you wanted to, uh, and it was difficult for me, you know, because mm. like that was that was the hardest. Uh, thing for me to do was to let go. Yeah. So I let go of the ACM completely, um, and then then to to say right, I've got to I've got to let go of this. So that was you know main reason for when did we move down? Um, 
didn't move out of the area for a while, did we? Well, the letting, so, yeah, the letting go thing. Yeah. I, I, I remember and almost not, and not being, you know, like not having well, interfered. I almost felt it was almost <laughs> a, a sad. It was sad in a way, really, because I think the only way that you really, uh, the only way that you were able to let go was to go full cold turkey yeah. and like go I'm, j- I'm not even coming in anymore no I couldn't and, and we wouldn't <laughs> I don't think well we're, okay so we're, we're when was the last time that you even set foot in the store I mean you, in the last 10 years you've been in what twice maybe probably yeah well if, well, the problem was yeah. I, I, if I came in but the, yeah you and can't I'd, and I'd see the, I'd, well the weed if there were weeds growing out the front you know like on the front of the pavement you know I'd, or there was I knew you'd spot those <laughs> <laughs> or, there was, or there was dust on a guitar or something like I that. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you're I, back in it straight away. Yeah, I was back in it straight away going, yeah, come on, guys. You know, but this was, know. I think, this and this was fundamentally our biggest, you know, you, you are a perfectionist and everything you've done in your life has been done to such a high level. And the, the fact that you couldn't, the fact that you beat yourself up about not being good enough as a drummer and actually it was, in your mind, it was better to give up if you couldn't be that, you know, it's like, and I, and that was, I think, the bit, where I was just like, I don't know if I can work with you yeah. because I can't, I don't see the, I don't want to sweat the small stuff. You know, I, I, I want to go, there's a sort of an, I always sort of think yeah. if the shared vision is here, I want to get there as fast as possible and I'll get there and realise that there's a load of stuff that's messed up and needs to be fixed when we get there. Whereas you'll go, I want to get there too, but I'm just going to make sure that nothing is messed up while we go I'm going to think and plan and everything like that so you still ultimately get to the same place but but coming back to the customer I still Mm. I think what you you know what you've managed to achieve is just still we're still I like to think we are Mm. which is excuse me greatly we're still customer focused we are you know so we're so whatever that means you know, and I think see, I used to. I used to. I used to think, what am I? What am I doing here in this business? No, I know what we're doing. We're mm. actually we're providing a real well, the best service that we can mm. for musicians, mm. you know, in all shapes and forms. You know, people that want to make music, how can we help you? Yeah, you know. So, so it well, always, and it comes always comes back to that, really, isn't it? Um, I think and, it comes back to the the love of yeah, it. Yeah. I think honestly and truthfully, you know, I love. Being surrounded by musical instruments, I love the opportunity to play the guitar. Um, I love, I love seeing what happens when people get together and make music. I see it at every level, from how therapeutic it is, how enjoying, how much enjoyment it is, how the, the social interaction's great, how fulfilling it can be to write a nice piece of music, all that kind of stuff. And I, and everything, I think, driven by just going, uh, let's try to get as many people to, to have that experience and engage with us. So all the thing about the, the high levels of customer service, I, it's not really done from a point of view of going... No, but that was also what ACM was about, you know, like being able to sort of provide, yeah. provide the tuition to encourage Absolutely. people to come in. We used to run, um, you know, like Saturday workshops yeah. for, for kids and things, and then you, the Weekend Warrior programme, all that sort of stuff. It's also but it, about it's, how to... I, I, didn't, I don't think I come from... I, don't, I haven't sort of... I don't feel like it's because there's a, a textbook that says if you want to be a successful retailer, this is what you must do. No, no. I just think it's... It's by, a passion. Yeah. It's a passion, and, 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 if, it, and if you can deliver that the chances are more people will come yeah. and experience the, yeah. the the music but we know. were talking last night weren't we so when we got back from halloween yeah. and seeing off the second bottle of red wine which yes. i wish we hadn't have done yeah that was good because <laughs> that was a mistake but um, <laughs> but we were talking there and i, I was, we were talking about 
enthusiasm, you know, mm. and passion. And I, it was one of the things that you reminded me of my time, you know, playing professionally in a band on stage, thousands of screaming girls and that sort of thing, and looking around at the other guys in the band, you know, and experiencing that amazing buzz when the band comes together. It's just, it's mm. rocking. Everyone's in the pocket, you know. And it's yeah. just a sort of like, it's a spiritual experience. Yeah, well, you know, it's it was, almost well, like an spiritual experience. And yeah. you think, wow, this is... And I, and I was saying, you know, how, how has mankind <laughs> evolved? <what> <laughs> man, womankind, mankind, whatever, evolved. It, it, it is a pseudo-religious experience when music and shared music comes good music comes together. Yeah. And if you're part of a group of people that's making that music, I don't... It's up there with... The greatest feeling. Yeah, well, your your ever. your speech in um, when you you know when you got that award in America yeah. was I thought was um, on the button yeah. because you know that, that I suppose if you think back it is enthusiasm for you know enthusiasm mm. for music and the passion for it that it's, uh, the, the, and the, and the, the the business is all is mm. almost second but if it's successful it fuels yeah it fuels and that's where you being able to yeah. to, to to encompass yeah. a bigger because that's your your area. What, no. <laughs> absolutely what has had a lasting rubbed off effect on me and took me a few years to, to process in my head and understand you know it's fundamentally all the enthusiasm in the world is wonderful but it doesn't pay the bills no. you know and particularly you've got 100 and something staff now and you know commitments to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds a month on x y and z yeah. it's like well like gulp when you come to me and go I think we need to redo our software. Our um, what is it? Like, yeah, well, we, we put we spent a million pounds on our website in two thousand and seventeen. Yeah, or something I'm going. Like that, you know, gulp. but you know, and and that's the reality, isn't it? Is that you know the business has to be profitable uh, in order to um, yeah. deliver yeah. on all those commitments. But trust, you but, know, like, huge trust in you guys. You know, yeah. like so, which is that's wonderful for me because it means I can step right mm. back in the business and I can just, uh, yeah. you know, and I we, enjoy life. You know? And there's something as well about the, the legacy you've created has mm. meant that, you know, staff, you know, from Stuart and Beverly, the, you know, my two partners yeah. Yeah. through to um, all the lots of guys, you know, from Gavin who does our guitar repairs, who's been with us for thirty odd years, and the the the, the, the mm. guys that manage our site, and I mean, there's, there's we've got some amazing staff that share that vision yeah, and, yeah, and have, just, have stayed and yeah. all part of it. Yeah. I've got um, okay. No, it's before good. we come to the end here, I've got, I've got a photograph for you. <laughs> tell me, and oh this God. this photo will be on screen now. <laughs> tell me as much as you can about where that was. And what, you know, what's going on in this photograph? Who is that handsome devil? Oh, God, that's me. Like, what, a, what year is that? 60, uh, let me have it. It's got to be pre-68, because this is in 18 to 20 Stoke Fields. Yeah, so that's the old store. So it's in the old store, so this has got to be 1965, 66, 67, yeah. somewhere around that, yeah. And... Um, I think we well we're just trying to get some shots. Look at this boozy and hooks, all this yeah. stuff. The fat, the, the air conditioning in the back right hand corner there. What, you know? What's the <laughs> what's the guitar? That's a that's a harmony sovereign. Sovereign, sure. Harm, I think so. Yeah, harmony sovereign rocket. No. What, go on, it's uh, it's a harmony H seventy five. Harmony H seventy five. Okay. And. Uh, uh, you haven't got it for me, have you? You're not going to present it to me. I might do. <laughs> I might have managed to find somewhere from Some uh, from 1964. It's a little early birthday present. Thank you very much for coming in and doing the uh, 
I don't know what you're going to do with this. Oh, and a suit and tie. Look at this. And I've, not, I've even got a pocket handkerchief. Can you imagine? What did, I still wonder what the... What, what the Maybe this is because we still had to deal with a sort of quite a mixed clientele in those days. So, you know, apart from the rock and rollers, still had to deal with the mums and dads and all that sort of thing. Do you want to... That is a 1964... Harmony H75. Harmony H75. Oh, wow. It may... I, whether it's the actual one in does that this, photograph does is... Does this mean I've got to now start learning to play the guitar <laughs> all over again? I can play an equal. I don't know. I just thought, <laughs> what? It's your birthday coming up soon. And, and we've got to that point in our lives where we don't really buy each other birthday presents because no. you just end up going, I don't know what to buy anymore. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you're coming on to do a video. That's brilliant. Um, I love that photograph. We've got copies of this photograph <laughs> up in the store. And it kind of reminds me, like you say, I, I think this is maybe 65, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's got to be around um, that. So I don't know what that, um, what else does it show? There's all sorts of, all their catalogues at the back there. But I just thought, I, you know, what can you I buy can you? And, I, and I, I started searching. It's taken me quite a while to find this guitar, <laughs> uh, particularly to find one that hasn't been modified or anything like that. And, was, yeah. and so there you are. Come Happy on. birthday. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much you for very coming much on. Indeed. Can I give you I won't give you a big kiss on camera because <laughs> he always uses his tongue. That's the <laughs> and uh, and yes, and well done. I, th I suppose on behalf oh. of, of, of everyone who works at Anderson's now and has done and all the customers that shop with us, oh. thank you very much for starting oh. that one back well, then. I, I, it was a good decision. Yeah, but you, you, you sort of like you put you say, isn't it amazing like how this you know this the business like it is now that started from that little funny little Greengrocer's shop back, well, <laughs> back in 1964 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, different... So, uh, it's, it, it is amazing. Yeah, pretty cool, man, but thank you very much. So there we are. Oh, thank you. Well done if you've sat part, through all that. Part three <laughs> next week. <laughs> That's the end. That's the end. Um, yes, thank you very much. Thanks, guys, for watching. I hope you found that little trip down memory lane yeah. interesting. Yeah, okay. um, But thank you very much, Jeff, for coming on. Thank you. All right. I'll be again. <laughs> Cheers, Dad. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our latest podcast. If you enjoyed it, hit that subscribe button. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>